Hey, what's good, people? This is episode 164 of the Option Podcast. That young lady over there looks like Ruth Nelson. We're going to find out. The episode starts right now. So let's talk about BYOP. All right. I gave the audience the acronym. I'd like for you to translate to that for our, our listeners and, and viewers. Well, I'll have to tell you what it's not. And it's very important Please, because most parents think and I tell them this is not bring your own photographer. This is bring your own parent. Yes. And it means that basically you can't come to training without your parents being engaged on the court. And it's all about the kids. So when I ask a question, it's asked to each of the kids and the kids translate it for the parents. It's not about parents answering the questions. And it's always interesting the very first day because it's almost like the kids, I said, okay, I'll bring in the kids. And I go, okay, everybody, you gotta know each other's names. Parents, you gotta learn each other's names. I said, now players, make sure that this is about you. And if your parents start talking, you need to tell them that this session is about you. So therefore, when I need the parents to toss the ball higher, you've got to know how to teach them how to toss the ball higher. So they will go back over. And actually, this will be great for you because one kid's mom sent me an email and says, Ruth, I don't think we can. I can make it tonight. Uh, and Sarah said, I don't want my dad going because he doesn't know how to do the drills and he doesn't know how to toss the ball. So hmm. that means that the kids have to know how to teach their parents, but it's bring your own parents and you have to be engaged, uh, not bring your own brother, not bring your own cousin. You know, it's you're there and everybody. I would say that if I did a survey and on a scale of one to 10, nine would say, can't you do this program where we can drop our kids off? And I said, I think that's an excellent idea, but you need to find another program. Th very well said. Very well said, because this is what they signed up for and in and, and its acronym and in its pre-existing, uh, um, uh, um, not condition, but pre-existing. Uh, pre yeah, force, you, it's a must. Yes, <laughs> this is what you, yeah, I'll say it in English. Sorry, sorry, I'll say it in Brooklynese. This is what you signed up for. <laughs> yeah, amen. And I would say probably guidelines. I don't say rules because nobody likes the word rules. So yeah. it's the guidelines to make it more efficient and more effective training because the, it's about the kids. So educating some of my audience members who are not from that familiar with club. And if you missed that entire episode of my last podcast, it goes like this. Parents usually do drop off kids because parents are not allowed to, uh, to be and for a lot of clubs parents right. are not allowed to be in gyms and and it depends on the area right I, I, right now one of our areas is high performance where the parents are not allowed and the other one is right. vista del mar which is a former convent which is now our campus and our headquarters where the uh -huh. parents are more than allowed uh most coaches are generally they need the privacy to coach their kids and and then you got coaches like me that are an open book because mm -hmm. if they see the way their kids practicing and they go to a tournament and if the kid's not playing, you know why. <laughs> then they understand. <laughs> why is my kid not playing? I just go, you know. <laughs> I'm also an, I'm also an open book because the I'm a theater performer. So uh -huh. 
you know, during water breaks, I'll like chill with the parents and I'm like, she's trying to get this, she's trying to get that and whatever and this and right. that. And then, and then like three months in, they're at a game legit yelling at the ref saying, that person's back row. So, you know, that person's back row. I actually had a parent try to argue with a ref that um, we uh, hit the net on an overpass, right? Or, or like a block. Yeah. But the girl attacking the ball was back row. Right. So he told the ref, "This is that's at least a replay. That's a net violation and a back row attack that happened at the same time. He said, that's the worst case scenario. Best case scenario, she attacked it first before we hit the net. And once she attacked it, that's our ball. The carry, is, the carry afterward is irrelevant. And I was like, that's a parent that didn't know a Mizuno from a Tachikara. Uh, but you know what? I think, you know, it's interesting. Some of the high school coaches that I've worked with and I have my program in, mm -hmm. and I actually started at uh, Lovejoy High School where Ryan Mitchell, who I've mentored for like 23 years, he was one of the ones that instituted this. And actually his wife and daughter are in my program, not him and his daughter, but his wife and daughter. And one of the things he said, it's BYOP has helped parents become better parents and educated. And I always, I said this to Doug Bill, who used to be, you know, former executive director of USA Volleyball. I said, these parents are the future coaches of probably 10 and under, not 12s or 13s or 14, because most of the parents don't want to go beyond that. And their knowledge probably is perfect for that age. But I said, the one thing that you're teaching them is wherever you're in a certain place, this is your responsibility. And when you're in BYOP, it's all about your kids. It's about educating them. Now, I do think that the BYOP parents, I have 60% of them are coaches of recreation and they're also league, not so much into club, but into the league, which you need that because you need an elementary school, you need BYOP, you need some recreation league, then you need junior club and then you need club and because everybody thinks you learn and you jump into club. Well, that's not the case. So the parents have become more educated that way. And the fun thing about it is, is the parents are saying, Ruth, my kid just tried out for a rec team and she's really upset. And I go, Jenny, what's wrong? She goes, I keep telling the center front person that she's supposed to pass it up to the attacker. And they keep telling me to pass the ball over the net so we can win. <laughs> so now the BYOP kids are educated with their volleyball IQ enough. They know that's what you need to do. And the problem is, is, you know, you, there's nothing really in between. You, you jump from this to that, and there's really no transition whatsoever. So that becomes a big issue. But if you educate parents enough so that they know that there's different ways, you know, not everybody has to play club, you know, sorry. I agree. Yeah. And here's what I like about BYOP. And, uh, and someone asked me, since when were you an expert on this? And I'm like, since last night. <laughs> okay, since last night. I'm not gonna have a guest and hope thing, hope everything just falls into place. That's not how I operate. But I feel like, look, I put my Avengers video game down, I did not sing karaoke. And I was up till four o'clock in the morning. Um, a night owl because I was emotionally invested in it. Uh, uh -huh. For two reasons. One, there's a common denominator of it's about the kids. Uh -huh. 
Uh-huh. Right. And that's something a BYOP. This is where BYOP um, uh, trumps the 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 uh, the basic logistics of just regular club volleyball. There's this yeah. heightened emphasis that you have to be there, but it's not about you. And, right. and some parents that change that changes the way their day to day operations work psychologically, too. Right. Because we're not machines. Oh, yeah. We're people. There are, there are grown people that still mm-hmm. think it's about them. Right. Right. I'm not making the illogical leap to acute narcissistic disorder, right? Or, or anything like that. Just the just <laughs> yeah. the just the gray area in between where, you know, you probably think that song's about you. <laughs> so right, right. <laughs> you're so vain. So um that's one of the things I got from it. The second uh-huh. thing I got from it was parents making it about their kids, educate themselves and put an and, and have a new respect for for a sport and then they have to a decision to make on Mm -hmm. whether they want their how deep is their love one Uh and how deep is their kids love right Mm -hmm. um i just got a text this morning not trying to make this about me but it's logically logically connected so bear with me um Mm -hmm. got a text this morning one of our girls is not going to uh nationals it's like um it's not enough money or it's kind of too much money and uh-huh. she's not going to the to- tournament in February and Jason Olive let all the parents know onboarding this is a competition club right you know what I'm saying um, and I was disappointed and you and I went I'm gonna give you the floor in a minute I was disappointed because between now and July she's gonna have a ton of playing time she might even be a starter so right. I think the parents, because they're not in a lot of the gym, because they don't, they don't really understand it. They mm-hmm. don't see that I'm not, I'm benching that girl because she's hitting the left side and she's a goofy foot. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Ty goes to the, the girl who has a traditional approach. Right. Even though right. that's not always mechanically right. Like look at Tina Gradina, look at Phil right. Dalhauser, look at, you know, Lion King. So, but I, I was heartbroken because one, her daughter can play a significant role at nationals that the parents don't see that they would appreciate. Two, right. you can't m- make it about your daughter when it's a team effort. Because there, there are girls who have a less skill set than her daughter right. that are going to go to nationals because because they're about team, because there's more there's more to it. And you're, and this I definitely got to give the expert the floor on this one. That's you. There's, def- there's more to it than just six people on the court, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that, that's what made me sad. And there was a third thing I forgot, but I, I, I need you to take over. I want you to take the wheel for me on this one. Well, you know, I think that what happens is the, the sport, and I can say this since 19, and I'm really going to date myself here. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still acting like I'm 21, but it's been since early seventies. Mm-hmm. And you, you figure this, the sport has only gotten more select for those people that can afford it. Okay. Or it ain't a broke person. Few, sport. <laughs> and I've, and I, then I uh, go to the next side of that. And that is the minority athletes that are very talented are getting an opportunity to play because they're very talented right then. But there are so many more talented minorities that are never given the chance, even though they're starlings and I've done my minority clinics and I've recruited minorities, but, but I I go back to this is the sport. Okay. I'm going to compare it to basketball because I'm very familiar with what it costs to play basketball and you can play on two or three teams in AAU basketball and it's 250 to 500 bucks. I've got nine-year-olds that are BYOP players that train with me and play club that pay four 
thousand dollars. Not to not to be trained with me. I think I need to add a a zero to my training because mine's about you know two hundred forty dollars, not forty two hundred dollars. Yeah. Well, no, so you're Chuck you, Daly, not Isaiah Thomas. So go ahead. I so mean, <laughs> if you get that, if you if you're looking at that, you have to figure out okay. And, and I think COVID is used as an excuse for too many things. I think if you look at things in an optimistic way and you look at COVID and said, okay, what are the things that we learned that we can do? Well, I train online, but I've been training with Skype since 1995. Yeah, so it it's out. not like you can't train online. So my point comes back to how do you figure a way that you can make the sport affordable so that everybody's getting the opportunity to be exposed to the sport so that you can decide whether it's a sport you might like to continue. Right, definitely. I think you're talking more from the logistical and parental support. I was getting to something a little bit deeper, which we were going to go anyway. Oh, oh yeah. Let, uh, uh, we were going to go anyway. Uh, no, I wanted to give you the floor because everything, I'm a, um, I'm a genius and a moron at the same time at ah. this level because it's steering this kind of this Kanye West. No one knows what the hell he's talking about. And then you bring it back. It's like, oh, I'm glad I stuck around for this and didn't shut him off. Right. Um, hey, I'm glad you stuck around. Yeah, you too, man. And you're like, I'm hanging up on this guy, man. He keeps interrupting me, man. Freaking males. Uh, um, I wanted to text back and I didn't, uh, but I wanted to text back. I wonder how the player feels about all this. She can't like. I was coaching John Jay. I was an interim coach. My, my friend quit. So before I moved to Cali, I took over there for like a semester as an interim because I was okay. already an assistant. And, I, and we're in the CUNY semifinals. And you got a parent saying that she has to go to a family dinner. We're in an NCAA team, right? And I'm like, and I'm like, how does she feel about this? Well, she wants to go. She wants to go to the game and this and that. And I'm like, you know, juniors, you can almost understand, but I'm like, this is a grown woman. And I guess a religious woman and, and, and right. that function w was around that. But I'm right. like, you, you picked the wrong time and place to say, God or volleyball choose. That's, that's so not fair. It's so disingenuous and it's so cheap. Um, and I'm not saying this about my juniors thing. I was talking about John right, Jay right. as an extreme example to bring it back. Right, and right. My question is, giving you back the floor, because I know you got some stories to tell on this too. The question was, I wonder how the kid feels about all that. Well, you know what? I think there's two aspects, okay? One, kids seem to have a lot of influence over what they end up doing, okay? Even though we want to say, the parent does. And I give you an example. I had a, a sophomore in high school that tried out uh, for one team. She put her deposit down and it was it was a thousand dollar deposit mm -hmm. that she's going to go play club there. And she comes mom comes back to me and says, well, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, you got to pick the club. I never say what club. I never say what college. You know, you got to make that decision because you're not going to come back and blame me and say, I said that was a great club and that was a great coach and you don't match up with them. So the mom comes to me and says, well, what do you think? And I says, well, what do you mean what I think? I think, you know, if she if she wants to play at that club, you put the deposit down, you need to play there. She goes, well, you know what? Her friends are playing at another club. <laughs> And we've decided to go to that club. And I said, that's an expensive friendship. Yeah. 
Now, come on, a thousand dollars deposit down and you're going to let your kid go to another club because she wants to play with her. So that's that's one aspect. OK, that's- the next aspect, the kids and I can and I can tell you this because I'm dealing with four and five year olds. They know exactly which buttons to push. They know exactly. They're so now, smart. The question, They're so smart, Ruth. And when they but when they come down to this, what decisions should a kid be making versus those decisions that financially affect you? Right. And hey, in a certain amount of time that what you're giving me, this is a lot of time to fundraise. This this isn't like, hey, Jason, you know, we're going to this tournament next week and we don't have the money to go. But if you you buy into your club, okay? I'm going to relate it, and I'm a scenario and analogy person. You buy into a university. You're supposed to be buying into play for four years. Not, you know, one of my juniors in high school said, "Well, Ruth, you know what? Some some players told me you can just go to a school, and if you don't like it, then you can transfer." Now, what? You know, hmm. so you've got this influence from the kids. You've got your parents that are making decisions and kids are an extension of their parents. Let's, you know, we're not going to say they're not. No. So when it all all comes down to this is if you're going to make a commitment to play on a team, it's like one of my eight-year-old parents said, we've committed to be at two practices a week for basketball and your program is on the same night. So what should we do? And I said, you got to do what you've got to do. If you think you got to be at basketball for two practices, you come every other week with me, you know, you or I figure out a way to let you stay a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be. You've got to be a basketball player. It's you've got to be a volleyball player. You've got to be, but when you commit to the team, I think, you know, a far enough ahead to know what tournaments and what national championship means. And you're buying into this. Now, if parents don't value commitment, then sometimes it's it's hard because the kid might not value it either. But I would think that, you know, to me, it, somebody asked me, what are the characteristics that you would ever have in an assistant coach or a staff member or a player? I said, three, loyalty, 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 loyalty. And guess what? <laughs> Nobody's loyal anymore. No. It's what can I get out of this? And a club coach, you know, she comes to me and says, Ruth, what do you think about you've been training this kid for 10 years and this kid decides not to train with you anymore? I said, have you ever read reason, season or lifetime? Hey, you're there helping a kid get to one next level. That kid does not belong to you. You are just one of their trainers. So in this scenario, this team is part of what you're developing of your own characteristics. Are you going to be someone who's going to be committed? Are you going to stick your foot in halfway and then it gets tough and you pull it out? Why? Because we know kids are not being had the opportunity to fail. You you must fail to gain knowledge. Yes. And I think Echoing your sentiment on that at the end, because I want to start from present to past, everything you just said. Um, Echoing your sentiment, 
the first time most kids actually deal with a loss is a sporting event. <laughs> you, uh -huh. you know what I'm saying? At, 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 that yeah. at that certain level, it's most likely a sporting event. I mean, you mm -hmm. got your chess players and this and that, but that's a whole other story. Um, Even recreation too. Yeah. The second thing you mentioned, uh, um, not the second, but going present to past. I like what you said about commitment because the parents uh, do this. They sign their kids up for jujitsu class or soccer mm -hmm. from, you know, kids because they want their kids to know the responsibility of being on time to a place, uh, working with others, you know what I'm saying? And respecting their time and this and that. And of course you have single sports like tennis or you got right. golf. Uh, uh, my, my kids is, is tennis. Her, her mom mm -hmm. is like a top 50 player. Well, her mom's an all sport athlete, but her mom's, uh, but she took the tennis because she, like you said, there's, there's, there, um, what do you, what did you say? There were extensions. You said there were extension of the parents. Yeah, so an she, extension of their kids, she is, parents, she's, yeah. she's a solo act like mommy and, and I'm good. As long uh -huh. as she goes to Harvard, like mommy, I'm, I'm, I'm like, don't, <laughs> don't be, don't, don't be like me for sure. Don't be like me, you know? So I like what you said, because if parents are doing that, citing as a pretext that I want to teach my, my kid has to have a discipline. She has to be in this organized setting. Then when she grows up, she respects other people's time. And she, you could keep your individuality, but you got to understand that, that it's their individuality too. And at the same uh -huh. time, uh, at the same, and I'm not out in this particular club player. I love her and I, lo and I love her uh -huh. parents even uh -huh. more. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're, they're my kind of parents, in fact. So, so right. if they're listening to this podcast, uh, too bad. No, but, but, um, <laughs> no, but, so I wasn't using, I was using them as a small example as right, to, example. um, to say that if you if that's what you, what you were citing as a pretext, then, right. then let, let the kid be who they are. Because I will tell you this, there are, I'm sure there are other kids that have other things to do. I'm sure there are other kids that have less playing right. time, less playing time than that person, but there they are, there they are. You, you, you know, so, so, and it's tough. And I like what you said about loyalty. I was going to quote uh, a movie, uh, Bricktop from a Guy Ritchie movie, the movie Snatch. And Bricktop said, you have all the characteristics of a dog. All, all except loyalty. <laughs> it's one of my favorite lines in there because there was a guy who like was doing deals behind his back. He was a mob boss. And he says, you, yeah. have, you have all the characteristics of a dog except loyalty. <laughs> and, and then you see like someone pull a hood over his head and he just keeps walking. Uh, um, and that's a big challenge for club coaches, which is oh, where yeah. I was going to next. Uh, um, this, this is a great conversation, by the way, because... I'm going to take it home. My, my, my boss, my program director, the one guy, okay. actually, I'm, I'm pretty much self, self-employed, but the one guy I answer to is Jason, uh, uh -huh. Jason Olive, uh, that take, turn back the clock on that university of Hawaii NCAA yep. final four, um, uh, Versace and Ralph Lauren model on the billboards <laughs> in New York, middle hitter at Hawaii lost right. to Penn state on five that year who lost to UCLA. Yeah. So this guy, like you said, you, you put so much time and effort, you assume, you almost feel like you're the parent. So when they leave, there is, this, there is this natural level of betrayal. And, he, and he's on the phone with me, and I'm not going to air our private conversations too much, but this, right. is, this is fun for everybody because he speaks like a Californian, <laughs> right? And he's like, you put in all this time, right? And all this effort, and, they, and then you watch them grow psychologically and physically before <laughs> your eyes, and then... They just come up and leave and all that training and all that time just for them to leave you. And I'm just like, Jay, I know how it feels. And sometimes everybody needs to coach college. 
because when you lose recruits, when people transfer, sometimes yeah. you need to coach all levels so you can be, become more right. thick skinned to that. Right. Like this right. is his first club. We're only four years old, but the savage coaches he enlisted, we're overachieving right now. We got a team uh -huh, in the top uh -huh. 10, you know, in the elite division. My yeah. my rebuilding team is like ranked 19th in the SCVA. So, so we're overachieving. And, and I said, Jason, you got you gotta, you, this is a real feeling, but uh -huh. as far as how temporary that feeling is, yeah. is that the challenge? Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm talking too much. I want to give you some of this, but it's, do you find the challenge is not, not feeling that because we're not machines, we're people. You're going to, you're going to feel that you put time in, especially if you personalize your work. So I would say that, you know, until I started training individually and I started that in after my collegiate coaching. And when I went into doing some private training, one parent talked me into going back on the court because I said, after my University of Iowa experiences, I said, I, I don't want to coach anymore. I don't want to coach 17-year-old kids, da, da, da. And the parent said, hey, look, Amen. we'll get the facility. that You won't have any problems. We'll collect the money. We'll get the right kids for you that really want to learn and all that. And I said, oh, yeah, I've heard yeah, that before. True. But when I was, yeah, that's exactly right. When I was listening to that, I admit when you're in college, you got them for four. And then you know, we're talking seventies and eighties. You got them for four. And most all the players, I would say the majority, I never had them for four because they went on to the national team. You know, now you finish your four and you can go on the national. That isn't what it was. You left. And so you had eligibility left. Rita had eligibility left. Flo had eligibility left. I would have had the year we finished fifth in the country. That next year I had Rose, Cheryl, Flo and Rita. Now, you know what, if I didn't win, then I should probably retire. Dude, but that's a national point, team. So my point to you is, is until 95, I didn't have that distance where I've spent more time in, like one would call me Aunt Ruth. And I said, don't you ever call me grandma. You know, you can call me Aunt Ruth, but don't call me, no way. I'm, I don't want to be put into that category. Yeah. But I've got some kids, the one now is a co-host on my BYOP on the go. I've had her since she's three and a half years old and she's a senior in high school, you know, graduating. I, Ebony, I started at four and a half. She went to USC. She went to Texas. And went, so I've had them for a longer period of time, but I've never felt that I owned any aspect of their life. I've always felt like I've been part of their journey. And you really you when you go into training some especially if you're training them privately and those are all the ones i train privately i've never coached a club i've trained a club i would never coach the club because i didn't want to deal with the parents so i wanted to just train the kids so that i could help them better understand how they could develop a good relationship with the club coach how they could develop a good relationship with their high school coach or a kid that goes to college so that they learn to develop that relationship with their college coach. I've never felt like I need it. And most of the time I will never, I'm not someone like a lot of people. Now they follow the player, they go and watch them. They do this. They, I really don't do that. I'll watch statistics. And if I see a kid that's not really doing well in the efficiency, I might send them a quote. I might send them, hey, you know, don't forget where you started because you can't, you don't know which way you're going to go. And I'll do a, a quote that I've developed and I'll do, or my phone is already, already always open or I'll have a parent call me and say, Ruth, my kid's having trouble in college. Can you please call them? And I go, oh, you know, OK, I'll do it, you know, but it's not 
I think you can't get so you really feel that you have that because it's really not. Yeah. And they're really not your kids. So I'm very, I think there's a professional distance. I don't socialize with those parents. I don't socialize with those kids, but I have a good relationship now with, I have some of my former players that are now college coaches. And, you know, like one of them said, well, you never even ever had a drink with us until we were out of college. And I said, well, you're not my drinking buddy, you know? So yeah, right. I think you can't feel, but you should really feel that you were part of the contribution where that kid's journey was. And it was for a reason, a season or a lifetime. Yeah. I, wow, that man, you, <laughs> I, I was going to say something after that, but I think you, I think you close the door on that. I, I, I'd like to finish by saying that I find it intriguing that that problem, um, you have generations of players, seventies, eighties that are consistent with the psychology, right? Like the, when I grew up, if I asked a coach, why they'd be like, why, what, <laughs> why ain't in your vocabulary pushups, you know, where, where this generation, it's you, if they ask why this generation's so smart, because if they understand the why they're better. And I think that's their strength and their weakness. If they don't understand the why they're, they're, they're going to do their own thing. And, and they, and they need to have this mixture of blind trust versus, you know, taking the time to explain the why. So I'm intrigued because what we are talking about with coaches, um, has stayed the same for all the generations that you've coached. I'm, I'm a two-generation coach. I started in 98. Mm -hmm. I, I dated Chi DiMaggio. She gave me an assistant coaching job and I was at City Tech. Building uh -huh. a pro, building their NCAA program off the ground. No club team, uh, literally off the guy. I mean, our last guy registered for classes 20 minutes before we played USMMA. <laughs> um, so, um, but you'll like this because I talked about this in the last podcast. Mm -hmm. um, when I interviewed for, with John Mayer for LMU, uh, uh -huh. you know, be on that team, director of operations. He said, what's my greatest strength in coaching? And I said, I personalize my work because it doesn't leave when I leave the court. I, I live in a video room like a hermit. My guess is you do too. Uh, now, when they asked me what my weakness was, I personalize my work. It hurts too freaking much when you put in all this time and then you become emotionally investment beca invested because you can't help it because we're not machines. And, and, right. and they, they give it everything they had and sometimes it's not enough and God, it hurts. It just hurts too much. And then I think that's where it starts. You had this emotional investment. You want to see the success. And then in many ways, if you're not living vicariously through them, you, 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 you're not just a, a coach anymore. So... My question was, you said 95, right? This is where you learned how to um, take that emotion. And as far as the level of how temporary that feeling is supposed to be in your life, right? Uh, uh, and you managed to gauge that. Um, was there a defining moment in 95 that made you say, I got I to gotta just, I got to find another way. Well, I, I got to find another way I, to deal with this. Yeah, well, I think because I said after I coached at Iowa, I said right. I would never get back into coaching. Right. Okay. Because it's NCAA, it's, 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 NCAA, people don't know, it's shredding, man. Sorry. Well, you know, if, if you really think about this, I say that the kids were changing in 1985, the year I got fired at LSU. Mm -hmm. So I don't think when people say, oh, kids have really changed now. No, no, no. I'm going to tell you, they were changed then. Yeah. Because parents were getting involved then and parents were getting, I mean, and you look at it now that it's even more, but I'll say this, that I think one of the things that 
since I didn't want to get back in, I had to set some what I considered parameters. And those parameters were, you want the parents at every training. They say, all parents now say the best shape they've ever been in when they've been with me in training because they ball shag. They ran after every ball. They may toss balls. They may put the balls in the, shoot the balls through the ball machine. I've never trained kids individually since 1995 without their parents on the court. Don't come to my practice without your parents. And Even, that, was, that was your evolution. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Because now they are there. They've made an investment, the parent. The kids made an investment of their time. But I've made an investment of my time and my time is valuable. And I'll have to say, and this is what I say, I don't train everybody. I'll do an evaluation. And if you don't match up with me or your parents don't match up with me, I'm not training you. No. Because I love training. Is that the difference between a trainer and a coach? Yeah, because I think what happens when you end up coaching, you end up taking a lot of kids that you probably don't match up with. <laughs> yeah, at every level college sometimes yeah. you recruit you know but you know the worst he, thing you could be is an interim coach it's like geez oh man okay fine this well, is on my this is on my win-loss record i didn't even ask for this person <laughs> i <laughs> you think know? though now you, there's okay it's i'll never forget russ russ was in my badminton class in graduate school and so we all come from the same george williams with jim coleman our mentor and terry and you know all of us were there and he said i said russ you don't like swing blocking. You love traditional blocking. He says, Ruth, have you ever tried to change someone who's been doing it for seven years? Mm. Yeah. So the point is that if kids are now starting, it's like Doug said to me, he says, Ruth, do you, don't you believe that the kids that are starting with you at five are going to be burnout? Mm. And I said, have you ever seen one of my sessions? I don't think they're going to get burnout. What I'm teaching them. I mean, you're talking about movement patterns. You're talking about what's, what foot's right, how to skip, how to jump rope with your parents, how to basically toss the ball, how you throw the ball over the net or the puffer over the net. I don't think you're going to get burnt out. If anything, you're going to have the basic fundamental movement skills and volleyball skills that you're going to feel better prepared because every kid that's playing in club, the club coaches tell them, well, your kid has the best skills of anybody on the team, but they're not tall, but they're not strong. But, you know, it's like the big and strong. So if I put this in recruiting, Jason, everybody in the country knows the 5% of the most talented kids. Okay. You can agree with that? 100%. I mean, endless okay. summer. Yeah. there. I was with endless summer, but sorry. Go ahead. And 95% need help getting recruited. Yep. All right. Now, let me give you the same scenario in club. 5% of the kids that are 12 and under are big and strong enough to play club. The other 95% need help on their movement skills and their volleyball skills. Yeah. So why is it we're trying to let kids play competition at age nine? No wonder they don't want to play. I mean, I've had four kids that I've trained. They're all liberals, right? Yeah. And how were they judged as liberals or DSs? Because of their size. So what am I doing in my training? I'm training all the skills. When I train hmm. kids, separately be outside a BYOP program, which that's how I started Go Kids Youth Sports, because that's without their parents engaged directly. But the parents are still there shagging balls and running around and shooting the ball. But one of the things that I say 
is I had one player. I said, you need to be set. You're learning how to set. You need to learn how to set. You need to know how. And they said, why is that? And I said, because when you go to your practice, what do you do in practice? She goes, well, I pass. And I said, okay, you're libero. Aren't you ever going to play defense? Do you ever play defense? She goes, well, once in a while. Well, then you become what I call one dimensional. So you're a one dimensional player. But I think the reason why, and this is my opinion, that players end up quitting at 12 and 13 is because they don't understand the game. If you don't understand the game, you don't have passion and love for the sport. And and you're miserable coming to practice. Exactly. And it's like it's and it's not it's like it's every coach's nightmare. They're thinking that their kid is like you, you, you think one of two ways and not not to go false dichotomy, but I like to entertain people. All right. So so you have one kid, one kid that's like, oh, man, you know, like school's almost out and they're halfway out of the classroom because they they, they want to go to practice. Right. They're excited. And then there's some people they're like. The school bell rings, they're out, and they just they see their backpack and they sling it on their shoulders because they got it because they have to go to practice. And I know those aren't the two type of kids. I'm not trying to emphasize a false right. dichotomy here, um, meaning that reducing an argument to only two choices. I know there's significantly more, but right. but as a launching point, that is the problem and that is the challenge. And I will name names uh, right now uh, uh, of coaches that share your sentiment that that are not BYOP because yours yours is unique in its own its own genre or, or style of coaching. I mean, you're, you're, you're truly one of a kind. You're a gem. Um, Brian McDermott, who is a yeah. junior's coach in Chicago, uh, Progression right. Beach Volleyball. Um, Bruce White, uh, New Orleans. He's actually back Bruce. in the- I know, I know Bruce guess, when he first started. Guess what? He's back up. He's back in the coaching now. He's coaching yeah. 18s right now. He's actually, I couldn't believe it. I just thought he was just having a good time. He built facilities. You know, right. you know what I'm saying? He pretty much made Louisiana Beach Volleyball with, you know, just getting everyone together. And all he right. has to do is just really sit back and chill. Even but when this, people didn't want to listen. Yes. That, and yes, that's when people were hard-headed. You oh, know, yeah. uh, um, you're right. 80, 85. Okay. No, but 85, that 85 crew over the 1985 crew up. You, you're on yeah. to something there, coach. Uh, um, right. But just to name names of people that share your sentiment, because it was important to highlight them and not the rest roses, not the people that are the obvious is obvious. I'm, I'm going to talk about some of the people that aren't talked about that are just putting putting in straight work. Brian McDermott right. is straight work. I right. if Brian if he if it ain't about club he don't care. Uh, what are transgender <laughs> athletes doing in mixed martial arts? I, why are you right, why right. are you talking about that? I I don't care. <laughs> you know what what are Kim Kardashian's butt implants look like? What yeah. what is this about club? I don't I do. <laughs> I don't care. Shut up. I don't care. That's Brian. I love him right. and respect him for that. He's highly intellectual, and he's and like you, he's about that life, that volleyball life. Right. Uh, um. So just wanted to highlight those people. Aaron Wexler out here on the West Coast, West Coast volleyball. Uh -huh. So just a few. I'm I'm gonna miss so many names, but I wanted to give those people example because they echo the sentiment of you and me. And I'm gonna finish here. Looking a kid in the eye and tell that kids tell that kid don't let a coach tell you what you can and can't do. Right. Don't let somebody line you up against the wall with other taller and smaller kids. You're a libero. You, you're not going to be an outside hitter. Forget about it. This and that. Right. Bruce White. I'm doing a documentary, and I'm, that's coming out later. Called Club Coach. Uh -huh. Bruce White said that that coach would be fired immediately. Immediately, out, literally out the door. Don't at this age group where these kids are not uh -huh. 
finish growing psychologically, where they're not mm-hmm. going to finish growing mentally, exponentially mentally, uh, where they're definitely not finished growing physically. You cannot right. be looking at some kid and tell them that you can't do that and you can't do that because you know what's going to happen? They're going to get taller, they're going to get stronger, and they're going to, they, they're going to, at some point, they're going to be influenced by, from Flo right. Hyman to Steve Timmons, all the way right. up to Reed freaking pretty, right? Uh, uh, right. Um, to to want to be like that person. Right. And it is our responsibility as coaches. It is our responsibility as coaches to to be real with them. All right, okay. Uh, you know, read pretty six four. You're like you're six one. You're six feet. The reality is, those 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 hitters aren't your size. But if this is what you want, how deep is your love? That's the stairs. That's the box jump. That's the trainer with the with the background stuff right there. I'm looking at her. Let's get to work. <laughs> hey, but the reverse is this. The tall person gets stuck in the middle and won't get to play backcourt. And it's the coach's fault. That's the yeah. coach's fault. Right. That's the coach's fault. Do you can you appreciate why um older coaches like you? I'm not gonna use the word older. We're, we're, oh yeah, we, you say older. I, I like say, that. I, I say older because we're still looking good. How many people <laughs> consider you older and then and now that they're in their fifties, they look older than you right now? Okay. Do I look fifty two <laughs> years okay, old? Okay, we won't answer that. Do I look fifty two years old? No. No, I look like a creepy 35, right? I do not look 52 years old. Well, uh, but you don't act that age. No. <laughs> my age and my shoe size, man. <laughs> there could be there could be a healthy contrast and, and comparison debate on my shoe size and my age, okay? <laughs> okay, you t- tell me this one question. What number podcast is this? 163. Okay, so I want to know, okay, once why did it take you so long to get to me? That's a good question. That's a good question. I, I um was I I didn't have the star power. I had to I I had to earn the right to have you on the podcast, right? No, but I want to tell you thank you. Yeah. But I want to put up a, a post. Yeah. That I don't feel bad because I want you to look at this. I was two hundred and fifty nine thousand eight hundred and thirteen on the wait list for COVID. Oh my god. <laughs> So that's my what is this the Titanic women and children young women and children first <laughs> you know and then tiny people and handicapped everybody except everyone except a Ruth <laughs> no but to answer your question in high praise um yeah. I had to earn the right to have you on the show. I had to build my platform and build my star power to to humbly ask you to be on the podcast. You know, oh, well, you didn't need to be humbly. I would have done it anyhow. Oh, and I, I just just to think, I did this the hard way. I could have had you, you know, I did this the hard way. <laughs> Come on. Hey, but listen, you know what's interesting? Okay, so look at all those emojis behind me. I have done over five hundred myself. I love them. I because I wanted to do something that related to kids yep. because kids love all those kind of emojis. And if they're a member on one of my uh, virtual gyms, mm-hmm. they can submit their own emoji yep. and it goes on the emoji board. Yeah. You know, like you it. were talking about, you, you gotta, having to gotta have one for me. Stuff. You gotta get one for me. Get one with a Yankee hat, man. <laughs> that'll be, um, I'll be eternally grateful. I think I'll, uh, that'll be my, that'll be my profile pick for all of my social media networks. If you did one for me. All right. All right. Promise. Now, I did one for Terry and Russ and John and they go, <gasps> how come you had a hat? And I said, because there's nothing to, in the emoji when you create it to create the level of hair. 
<laughs> Tell them, look, I respect the fact that grass doesn't grow in busy traffic, but gotta have a hat. <laughs> I didn't mean to get you off, but I just, you know, it's amazing that what, what you're talking about with look, kids. Look because, at this, look at this Jufro. <laughs> oh, now, okay. I won't say anything. I think that hat looks wonderful. Yeah. I got, a, I got a big old, okay. Ju I got a big old Jufro under this thing. Yep. <laughs> well, I noticed that I was wondering what you were going to wear when you interviewed me. Yeah. Oh, we had our conversation because you always wear something always different. Yeah. Oh, well, the Yankee hat is is the same. And yeah. for, for this, I went straight rookie uh, because um, um, it is oh, yeah. a, it is a general respect that um, this is a conversation, but I want to learn from you more than you're going to learn from me. I know we're I know you're a constant student of the game and you're going to yeah. leave here and you're going to learn something from me. But <laughs> but this this the, just the white is a sign of my respect of saying, hey, you know, this is my podcast, but today you're in charge. Okay, so <laughs> that, that means I'm gonna have to send you send you a Go Kids shirt. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. The last shirt I wore said, "Nobody cares. Work harder." I mean, right? I, I saw could, that. I could do better than that, <laughs> right? We can all do better than that. I'm, I am. Look, I am, um, in nature, uh, a hater. I am a native New Yorker. I am a Bill Parcells kind of guy. Where, uh, bottom line. Uh, I say you are what your record says you are. That's not always true, but I was raised that way. Uh -huh. So this is why, you know, when I moved to California, I don't, and people want to huh? get into, get into this whole validation game with me. I, I don't, right. you know, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't impress me. It doesn't impress me because you are what your record says you are. You know what I'm saying? So if you, you feel you got to keep tooting that uh, uh, to validate yourself, fine. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do, I'm going to do the same thing and then become what I despise. And then, then I'm like, I don't want to be around these people. I don't like being around those people because I become what I despise, you know, because right. they look through me because they don't know me. And I'm like, oh, you know what? You know, F you, I've done this, I've done that. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm doing the same thing they're doing. I'm sounding just like them. And my wife is like, my, my wife would be like, you know, yes, yep. I let yes. you do whatever you want, but I got I got to tell you, you know, <laughs> my wife gives it to me straight, dude. You know, she we, we got a great relationship, but when she needs to be on, she's not going to agree with me for its own sake. All the way up to last well, night. <laughs> you think of this. Mm -hmm. Why is it that there are not more successful coaches and I base success on? producing players, producing, not just wins. Okay. Yeah. When I first started coaching, mm -hmm. there were, there were not role models. Okay. Billie Jean King was my role model in tennis because I played tennis right. and that's what I, that was my main interscholastic sport. We just, we played volleyball, but it wasn't interscholastic. So my tennis role model was Billie Jean. And the reason why, because I wanted to be the best that I could possibly be so I went and I picked the best person that was there. So right. not everybody has the same level of ambitions. Like I wanted to be on the Olympic team. Right. Well, I wasn't. I was, a, you know, assistant coach to Ari on the national team. I played on the national team, was a setter on the national team, coached the World University Games team, you know, did all those things because of Ari. Ari allowed those opportunities oh. because one is – I was probably one of the best assistant coaches he ever had because I knew why I was there. Yes. And I wasn't there because I knew more than him. Yeah. I was there for a reason. Right. And that happened to be that I had 
you know, four players that were on the national team at the time that were in college with me. And I think what happens is we don't have enough role models and mentors around us. And I think this becomes a bigger issue because a lot of people would say, okay, Ruth, who are your role models versus your mentors? And I said, well, you know, Billie Jean was not my mentor because I never got to know her, but she was a role model. Mm -hmm. Uh, My first role model in coaching was coach Tom Landry of the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. Class class act. uh, He's a class act. Sharp. He was good with media. He was good with the players. He was a Christian. He really thought, I mean, I like, and that was my first year at Houston. Okay. Straight shooter. Jim, Jim Coleman was a role model, you know, Mary Jo, Ari, I mean, all those were role models. And then my role model too, of Coach Landry, he became a mentor because I was in business with him and his son in the telecom business. Right. And I got into that business after I got in and Eunice Kennedy Shriver. She wasn't a role model. She was a mentor because I worked for her for 18 years. Right. So when you start looking, why is it that, and this is such a big issue now, is why aren't more women supporting more women in the sports, not just volleyball, but in all sports? Why is it, that's not saying, okay, so you saw that I had Tom Landry, I had Jim Coleman, you know, I, I can go down the list of men. And what do they all have in common, right? They're all men, women. yeah. Okay. So my point comes back to this is, you know, if you're a young coach, okay, I was a head coach at age 20. And that was like unheard of. Okay. But I'd been on the national team and, you know, I, and that's kind of like what's happening now. National team players go get caught. But now there's a difference between getting paid $1,500 and add another two zeros, you know, $150,000. Yeah. This is your career. You're not waiting tables at night. Okay. So I coached at Houston for $5,000, coached tennis for 4,000. I got paid 10,000 for teaching, you know, I mean, teaching in the classes and 5,000 more for supervised student teachers. And I was a club, you know, advisor for the men's volleyball team. Okay. So you, you didn't do that. When I left Iowa at the highest paid coach in the country at 43,000, I was still teaching, supervising student teachers, coaching, I did have staff at Houston. I had no staff, no staff, no staff for eight years. And then, you know, you look and you go in that and then the person that replaces me makes $150,000 that had 15 years less experience than me. So now you know why I like to consult now, because it's at least it's, it's more than what I used to get paid. You know, let's answer this question together as we as we take this, and, and I think it's going to be said way to uh, uh, women's coaches and athletes in sports too, uh-huh. which is uber uber important. Um, role models. Let's start with that. When um, somebody asked me, I was an actor. My, I was in a, the the theater program at Marymount, which, that, which at the time was ranked number two in the country. So, whatever. Uh-huh. Moron from Brooklyn. I auditioned. I got in. I got in. Let's finish my degree here, right? And and a lot of people appreciated like my knowledge in theater and, and theater performance and direction. And uh-huh. they asked me what was my biggest obstacle for acting. You know what right. I told them what it was? Acting school. <laughs> acting school. Sometimes okay. people get caught up 
and they lose their natural ability to do what they do best because they're yep. surrounded by people, the pressure of what everyone thinks they should be, which is why Bill Parcells was a good coach. He's, I would never consider Bill a role model. That dude smoked big cigar cigars and drank like, you know, drank every night. And he, he is the poster boy for the immunocompromise, right? right, uh, right. Um, but when you look at people like that, that just, put blinders on and see something that they're good at and grab and grip it. The role model thing takes care of itself. Look at Michael Jordan. The guy gambled, uh -huh. drank this every night, but he was a role model because what he did best influenced kids and everybody to be sure. like Mike. LeBron is significantly, if you would look at the big scheme of things, LeBron is the GOAT a role models for basketball. J right. Jordan's the goat, you know, I mean, you gotta have a good right, conversation right. on the court, but off the court, like in the, in the, in the, uh, contemporary version of what a role model is, LeBron wins by a landslide because married his high school sweetheart, right? Got, got a $10 million, uh, uh, and didn't, didn't go out, didn't go out drinking, whatever, you know what I'm saying? No controversies, not a single right. con off the court controversy by a guy who never even played college basketball and, and made it to the pros. He's a, that right. dude's a role model. I want to be like LeBron, right. <laughs> you right. know, but you want to be like Mike too. So, and the right. point I was trying to make, these are two completely different people who cemented their statuses in the goat conversation on and right. off the court. And also at the same time did with, uh, had blinders and focused on what made them a role model. Greg Popovich, mm -hmm. come on, yeah. you can't even get that yeah. guy to say two words in an interview, but he's a role model too. So, right. so I think people need to be very, very careful about uh, um, these unfounded virtues that they think are, are supposed to be limited, but not included, included, but not limited to what sure. they, what they uh, posterize as a role model. That was the right. first thing I wanted to say. The second thing, people like you, people like LeBron, people like, uh, um, Mario Trebich, man, we got to talk about him. Right. But people like that, the 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 one thing I want them to do, and I want you to make a mental note because I, I don't want to drive us off the cliff again. <clears throat> um, if they make it to the penthouse, uh -huh. push lobby, send the elevator back down, man. Push lobby, push lobby. First, you know right, that that right. thing that says L, which is not right. loser, means lobby, uh, and send it back down. And because right. that, and if you do that, they, people at least have a chance to get to the penthouse like you did. Right. So that's the best right. metaphor I know how to say that. And I hope I didn't go too far on that because I'm, I don't know, again, this is no, not, this was, is highly no, personal that, to me. No, I think that's good because I think that you, you can't get, it, I mentioned to you probably the majority, uh, I would say 60% of my followers are international. And the reason why that I believe that is because I spent, you know, 18 years with Special Olympics traveling worldwide. And I spent more time internationally because that was more my part with Sergeant Shriver and Miss Shriver was more U.S., but I reported also to her. And one of the things that I learned that when you're in someone else's country and you're in their house and they put their feet up on the table, it doesn't mean you have the right to put your feet up on the table. Even if they ask you to put your feet up there, you have to decide what you consider protocol. And I think there's a lack of protocol right now. Hmm. And I think the international followers and people that I deal with have much more respect for what my background and what I've contributed. But it's not been, if I wanted to thank you, I should have quit coaching my first day because that's not how I started and why I started. Right. And, and for you, I say this because 
here, everybody thinks it's like somebody says, oh, Ruth, you know, I like your BYOP program, but I do it. Well, no, you don't. You're not a teacher. You didn't get a degree in teaching. You didn't get a degree in physical education and secondary education with a psychology background with a master's degree in exercise. I mean, I could go blah, 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 blah. Yeah. In my mind, I'm thinking that. And, I, and when is it gotten to a point where we can't learn? And if this is now 23 years for me at age 12 and under, 23 years at that age, and probably of that, at least... 10 of those are 10 years with the same kids going for 10 years, seeing them from one age to the next age to the next age. Now, methodology, you know, in teaching is critical. And I don't, I don't care whether it's during COVID or not, you have to have some type of methodology. Yeah. And if your methodology is simple for a five-year-old, all you have to do is progress it a little bit more to be applicable at any age. Yes. So why is people don't want to pay anything for knowledge. No. Do you know how much money? Okay. Think of this from 1972 until 1984 after the Olympics, when I traveled like each year with a national team, whether I was a player, assistant coach, a technical expert or something, how much money do you think I was paid from 72 to 84? I mean, back then, $4,000, I'm like, that's a year's rent, man. So, <laughs> but I, 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 I know, I will tell you, it's significantly less than what, what people who are less qualified than you are earning now. Zero. How about, how about that? Nothing. I thought it was, I thought it was less than that. Nah, it, well, no, I, I did have to pay quite a bit myself. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm, that's for the audience. That's what I meant by less than zero. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah because, it, because no one in ever, it's like one, uh, one guy says, I heard you're looking for someone to bang balls. And I said, well, sure. You know, but I, I don't want to have to teach you. He says, well, I, I'll give you a reduced rate. And I go, wait a minute, you're, you're going to charge me to hit balls in my practice. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it for $45. And I said, you mean $45 for, for three months? And he goes, no, $45 an hour. And I said, you should be paying me because I'm going to have to teach you how to hit them. Yeah. So the, <sighs> the idea of people that even when you pay people to do things, they seemingly are saying, well, I'm doing it. Yeah. Well, no, you don't understand. That's not how I want you to do it. Yeah. So there's there's no pay your dues anymore. I mean, what happened to pay your dues? Agreed. Let someone come into my club and say they'll charge me 45 bucks. I, 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 I tell you, I know, I know Brooklynese, right? Right, right. All right. To answer it in Brooklynese, how about I put my foot in your behind and then I'll owe you the rest? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, about, how about that? Handshake deal, right? <laughs> uh, um, yeah, they're, paying dues is important, but also people recognizing on, on beyond their regional superiority of people that pay dues is also another thing. I moved here in 2016. I had already coached NCAA for 12 years right. as, a, as an assistant or a head coach. And I mean, when I say coaching, I don't mean, you know, getting uh, being at a coach with that was the hotbed for recruiting. You know, when I when City Tech, there's definitely two guys on that roster that were track and field guys playing college that had to learn fast that had you had to crash course uh, and, and and you always remember that because you're like oh my god that guy became a real volleyball player and, and us as coaches feel better about ourselves because of our work being done so i i like the res i i co-sign with what you're saying respecting people that paid their dues but 
the fact that I didn't pay my dues here and the, and the fact that they made me start over, um, I was cool with that because I knew the cream rises to the top. You know, right. uh, um, um, again, you are what your record says you are, and I'm a dirty New Yorker. So, so I knew, <laughs> I knew moving here, um, I ha uh -huh. that I would have to hit. In many ways, I'd have to re hit the reset button. And in many ways, because I don't know a lot of people, I'm going to mistake names or whatever, and I'm going to look like like an absolute moron in the beginning. Like, who is this guy? But I, <laughs> but um, answering this question together, because um, I wanted to get into something deeper about rule changes and how right. coaches like you survive like years, decades of the of volleyball rules changing. We're going to have a lot of fun with that. But um, I will say this, and I and I say this to all of the guys who move here or whatever. Um, one, life's not fair. Life's not fair, all right? Sometimes you got to run 150 meters for the 100-meter dash. It's not fair, but if that's what you want, you got to do it. Two, if you take that historical fact not kicking and screaming like a baby about it. There is a there is a reward at the end. There mm -hmm. is a reward at the end. But um, but the operative word is not kicking and screaming. The operative words, a relative stress is taking it, because if you take it kicking and screaming, people remember that person and who wants to do business with that person, right? They're right. only known right. as that person that had to that that be you know that whined and complained all the way up. So I'm I'm, I'm the message that I'm, I'm not trying to say is don't be a whiner. My my the message I'm trying to say because we're answering this together is there's a reward if you accept that reality and are willing to put in the hard work. You know, six years I've been here and it's I I am golden. I am in where I want to be, per, my personal goals, because right, right. that, that's all that matters in the end. Going home, my kid looks at me, what does daddy do for a living? You know damn well. You know, something my wife looks at and, and adoring eyes. For some reason, the smart chick is head over heels for me. Uh, right. uh, um, yeah, I'm in the catbird seat. I'm in the catbird right. seat uh, uh, for what I want to do. Did, I wanted to coach I college. So, I did you know, it. I wanted to coach club. I did it. I wanted to, you know, coach a AV, some AVP guys into the main draw because uh, right. I wanted to punch my own ticket. So I coached three teams right. into the draw. So right. I'm in, if I'm in the tent, they didn't give me that. I, I punched my own ticket. So right. there, there is something redeeming about like, this guy thinks I, doesn't be, I don't belong here. I'm like, you're the one that grew up here, dude. <laughs> you're the right. one that doesn't belong here. You got gifted that spot. So don't talk to me about paying dues and respect, right? You, you're okay. in the draw right now because people know you, but also right. because they paid their dues. But, but I'm right. like, don't tell sometimes. me that. I'm, but don't, yeah, but don't, yeah, sometimes. And sometimes they just glorify babysitters. You want to talk about glorify right. babysitters? We say that later but um yeah, yeah. um but the point i was trying to make was just because someone else paid due somewhere else doesn't mean that you can't respect them like a person right if they come like you said to your house right and kick up their feet like like you're supposed to kick up your feet because that was a big a broader point you were a common denominator point you were trying to make show some yeah. respect zeus's law of hospitality is don't take the host does not take advantage of their guest and the guest does not take advantage of their host. That we call that. Um, I stu studied that in theater, Greeks and Romans class. The the the, right. the, the Zeus's law of hospitality. That, so there's that, no protocol now. No, no, yeah. Anything. It, yeah, yeah. How did you survive that? I mean, let me tell you something. I have a question for you. When you were playing and when you were coaching, <laughs> this is going to be fun for the kids. You were allowed to block a serve. 
you everyone was like they were allowed to block a serve so when i go to coach club and i see coaches uh, close to our age or my age or older right. and i see kids at the net the middle blocker at the net instead of on serve receive like down she's at right. the net on serve receive with her hands up like some uh -huh. of the coaches are like what the hell is she doing and i'm like that chick's old school man <laughs> that girl's old school <laughs> it's just like a teaching tool for them to get started so they can eventually learn so so when i see that i smile because i get it so i'm just talking about that one rule and i'm giving you the floor because the biggest rule swings happened in 2001 right so 2001 well, introduction think, of libero I think, well actually i think uh 84 olympics when they went to the metric system and they changed the court size for right. college tell me okay. educate me okay so it was kind of interesting we were at the regional tournament you got to remember i played in aiw which is the real what i consider real women in sports championships and in 81 the ncaa started but they didn't necessarily want the women they just wanted to what i consider control what they do right. so during the aiw days we were at the regional we had texas athletic association we had regional athletic Association, and the aiw national championships which by the way not all california teams won those championships because saul ross won too i mean i yeah. could go on it, you know what women in coaching when you had in the final four there was three or four women in the final yeah. four now you have two finally after you know since yeah. 1981. all right now i gotta jump back to your question on this so when you've got early days when you're talking about women in coaching what were the difference in the rules what changed well I was at the regional tournament and at LSU and I walked in and the nets weren't put up, the lines weren't down. And I thought, holy cow, man, we're, we're 30 minutes away from starting. Okay. Now you got to remember Louisiana was like the East coast of what West coast thinks, right? They don't think there's volleyball. They still, I don't even still think they think that, but yet there's plenty of recruits and, you know, everybody recruits, you know, players from all over. So I walked in, the AD says, um, well, we're getting ready. We got the courts down. I said, no, the, I said, the net's not right and the court's not right. And she goes, what are you talking about? And I said, that's a 30 by 60. She goes, well, here's the rule book. I said, that's not right. It's 29, six by 59. And it's seven, four and an eighth, not seven, four and a fourth. And she goes, well, what am I gonna do? And I said, oh, we know how to do this in about six and a half minutes. I had trained the players because at Houston, when we played in Hoffines, you had to put the lines down all the time. Right. So we got our pencil out, put the roller out, you know, you do it this, you had to take your shoes off, you got a socket oh. and do it down. We could do each court in six and a half minutes. And the AD comes over to me and says, um, I'd like to hire you. And I said, hire me, put lines? I don't think so. She goes, no, I'd like to hire you. To our to new coach. Oh. I said, no, you got a coach. She goes, and she says, no, I'd like to hire you. I says, I said, you can't afford me. And so I just went ahead and went, but okay. So that in itself, do you know, there's still clubs that still are playing 50, I mean, 60 by 30 and they haven't changed. And I, I laugh all the time. Okay. So that rule change. Okay. So how did I change through all the rule? I never did blocking the serve. Yeah. I thought, okay, you know what? Why? Okay. I think they're trends and they're fads. And I felt like blocking was a fad. Okay. So I've never seen anything it. like it. But what we did was we practiced serving so that the ball went right over the middle blocker's head. Uh -huh. So they wouldn't, you would take them out of the middle attack, right? Because they couldn't back up and take the ball and go because they weren't doing that. 
So that role, role in itself. So if you really kind of look at how I've adapted through all the, hey, we did jumping and, and serving, but we didn't jump serve in a match. We did, Mike, Michael DiNardo, who's a referee in Dallas, and I've mentored him since he was at Ole Miss and when I was at LSU. And he was telling about a kid who came up to him and said, hey, coach, you know what? You're not going to believe what I learned today from my high school coach. And he goes, what was it? And she, she said, well, it was swing blocking. He says, I learned that in 1973 from Ruth Nelson. Well, we did swing blocking. We did swing blocking with Ari. We did swing blocking with Mary Jo. We did yeah. tandem blocking. There isn't anything really new and serving along the inline. How many people tactically really think about serving different positions on the inline? I said to a, a player the other day who's trained with me for 12 years, I said, tactically, where's the one place that you probably should avoid serving from? And why is it that many coaches teach you to serve from there? She says, middle back. And I says, why do they teach you that? because you're playing middle back and it's shorter to run there. I go, that's not the reason to play a position. The reason you serve from different positions is tactically how you want to take someone out of the offense. You want to take the left side. It's like I always say, hey, serve and run the right side attack because left front doesn't want to block. They don't practice blocking. They only practice hitting. So tactically, I think a lot of these new things that have been taught but Ari and I we both love we don't like rally scoring we like side out yeah because you had to work your butt off to get the ball can can we stay with this uh, can I give you an yeah. example uh, can we stay with this I have a pretty yeah. cool story right um Hunter High School not Hunter College which is on, which is on 68th Street that's a CUNY school okay. Hunter High School is a prep school for the CUNY schools I, I mean a public okay. school but not really all right. So really quickly, they for 15 years, they led the nation in um, cumulative SAT scores and Ivy League okay. application acceptance. They were number one in the country. This little hole in the wall on 94th Street and Park. So we're playing a team from Long Island, Chaminade, and uh -huh. they absolutely destroyed a team that we had a hard time beating. Like, okay. we, I mean, us was like 17, 15 game three, you know, last game. And they just they just ran through them, like absolutely murked them. And the, and my setter comes up. He's like, any thoughts? And I'm like, you go sit over there. I'll talk to you later about offense. So, but I, wa I wanted to talk to some of my, my um, competitive servers. I have two really good three jump servers, right? Uh -huh. And I said, look, let's work um, right uh, position one. Let's work right shoulder. And if you miss, it'll probably hit the line. But don't don't be out there trying to hit the line because you're not a machine. Karch is a machine. Karch could, Karch could look at the line and hit the line, right? So... <laughs> And they were like, but what about the rotations where their libero's there? You know, and I was like, when their libero's there, they're in row six. That means their their setter's the next server because that means their libero's serving if, serving right. for the middle, right? So, and I was like, I'm not talking about the libero. I'm talking about their setter. When you serve position one, huh? what their setter's doing instead of squaring up, and <laughs> and you know squaring up to back set or whatever, yeah. he is. Like this is a net behind me, <laughs> convenient, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so, so when it goes to one, he's doing this. Yeah. For middle, he's doing this for right side. Yeah. 
And and when he tries to squirt for the four, he does this, and the four drops way inside. So now we get a right. three-man block that not only sees a setter that's predictable, that allows us right. to set our set up early, but both sets are winding up inside. And I said, I want you to keep serving there until they fix that. Um, and they're like, do we jump serve? I said, no, serve a, serve a goddamn lollipop. I just, you know, I want to see, you know, look, if, he, if he's got the goods on the lollipop, then we'll go tougher and then we'll move on or whatever. And this one game, we, we beat him in two and then face him again in the finals. Uh, and their coach made zero adjustments on it. And I'm like, guys, I know this is boring. <laughs> this might be a little boring. Because, right? Because, look, you get enough points on that side. You want to be cute. Ah, they, they left, you know what I'm saying? They left position five open. I'm just going to drop them because they, they don't okay. see it coming. And you serve out, you <laughs> moron. You know? So, so that was just an example of what you were talking about with tactical. Because sometimes uh -huh. what doesn't make sense to, to, the, to the, the volleyball, I don't like to use the word casual because uh, that's insulting right. to some people, but casual, I'll just use it for this intent and purpose. Uh -huh. uh, um, what they don't see, why, they serve, why is this guy serving the best passer on the court? I'm like, right. yeah. Uh, right. No, the real question is why are we getting points, right? <laughs> and, right? And spinning this back to you, why the hell is your team starting in row one where that's the rotation statistically that gives up the most points? Because <laughs> you can have front, three front row hitters? Really nice. Yeah. Still, I mean, so I mean, there are things go, that go beyond that, which I it is my duty, honor, and privilege to have you on the podcast where I can talk about these things, you know? So <laughs> Hey, well, listen, 2013, I'm in Japan with Ari. Ari's coaching pioneer, Daniel Scott. He's huh. the only five-time Olympian, by the way, in the U.S., but she was women. in my junior program in Baton Rouge. For women, right? Women. Yeah. And uh, not five-time Olympic medalist, but five-time Olympian. Well, Kerry Walsh five times, because Kerry Walsh was indoor in 2000. And then, and then four, four beach. And four beach. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But go ahead. So there's only like three in the world. And Danielle's one of those. But anyhow, she is. So she's playing on the Pioneer team. And I said, and this is when the Libro was first coming out. And I said, Ari. We had no defensive special. We had everybody played all the way around. Flo was a six rotation player. Rose was a six rotation player. Everybody was six rotation. I was a six, two setter, a true six, two setter. You don't take me out. I stay in the front court and I hit. Yes. So the, people don't understand that's a true six, two. So I said, interesting Ari, why is it that everybody has their libero they either can pass or they can play defense. Very rarely do you find that person that can do both. That's both. And, and I look over there and I go, that's why. Because the libero's over there passing for two hours and the defensive player is over here digging for two hours. But in the game, when somebody says serve the libero or libero, they do this. Somebody says, <laughs> "Let's like the jersey." Don't do that. <laughs> and I said, "Why do you think that you th maybe she's a better defensive player than she is a passer?" Yes. So in reality, if you look at okay, there's some systems now where they have it set up that you can look and you can figure out when to put somebody in. Okay. Right. Yeah. Like for instance, okay. The middle goes out, you put a, a libero in the diddle. Get a, okay. My point is, is that tactically when you're in a game, how do you automatically take somebody out when you've never given that person a chance? And why all of a sudden do you forget about how many subs you've used 
if you're training players all the way around, mm-hmm. why, yep. why won't you let a player? Somebody was recruiting one player I had, and they said, no, she's got to play right side. And I said, why is that? And they said, because if I put her middle off to take her out. And I said, why? Change the rotation. <laughs> change the receiving formation. Or just change where the, the change. Um, tell the libero tracker to do their job. The libero's playing a different position for a different hitter. There's, what rule does it say the libero has to play for the middle? No. <laughs> or and like you I said, just, back then, just the back row sub. Yeah. 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 It was in, it, in the back row sub was put in for flow, not because she couldn't play back court, because she needed a break. Yeah, because it was side out. Well, 60, it was, 70, 80 balls. Yeah. Uh, look, you could have a 15-point set that can last an hour. Back then, educating our audience again, bring it, I mean, because not everybody knows everything, right? Uh, right. Before 2001, side out scoring meant you had to be the serving team to score, um, to, to shorten that paragraph. And I'll, and I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah. And, you're, and the reason why coaches like you last so long is because you didn't teach specialization. You, you, everybody, if you look at the 88 men's team, right? You had Craig, Craig Buck from 84 to 88 got sent down to double to single A by Doug Beal until he learned how to receive serve, right? Like, I don't mean to out nobody. I'm not trying to do that, but Craig Buck came back in 1988, but he could receive serve. Timmons, who went from middle to oppo, you know, for Pat Powers, he was a good serve receiver. Doug Partee, who was a middle, was, was an amazing serve receiver. Doug Partee was like this super athlete. You know, under undersized middle. Uh, okay, um, so you're going to learn something. Please. Every single player mm-hmm. set an offense for me too. I yep. ran a six four and a six three. Nice. And people thought I was crazy. But they don't I even said, know what a six three is. <laughs> but I go know. Ahead. And 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 you know what? Flo was playing. I was playing on the national team and playing with Flo mm-hmm. at the same time she was playing for me at University of Houston. Right. So I thought to myself, what is it position I could put Flo in? that she would learn and better understand the game. I She was my setter. So every time she set, guess what? And it went over the net, it was back row player, because look at, you're talking six foot five, She's her hands go over. So every time she jumps set, and I, I said, you gotta keep that ball on the side. But Rose was a setter for me three years at LSU one year, I mean, three years at Houston, one year at LSU, and she did some setting on the national team. Awesome. So if yeah. you really, and, I, and this is my, because I always have this discussion with Ari. I says, look, the people that have been setters at the highest level, whatever that level might be, I think they have a different understanding when they coach than a person who is just a hitter. That does not mean you can't be a great coach. Right. You know, that, but I'm just saying you have a different, for instance, for me, Debbie Green, Terry Congdon, who played UCLA, three-time All-American. Yeah, UCLA, yep. Beth McLaughlin from Hawaii, Laurel Brassy, who was at San Diego State, played on the men's team. She was with us on the national team. Kathy Noth, who played for me on the 84 junior national team. We would have these conversations and say, why has the setting offense changed so much that it alienates your better hitters hitting sets that they probably hit well, but you're forcing them to hit something else? Agreed. Because the offensive system has become very simple. Yeah. And from 72 through Ari, mm-hmm. even Mary Jo and Marilyn, the <laughs> offense was not. I mean, hey, Ralston used to come to my practices and he says, you have more plays than my football team does. <laughs> and he says, 
Now, ask you that, said to me, wow. said, tell me why, <laughs> why would you have the number of plays that you ran? Mm-hmm. Okay, so if let's take a step back. 1984, Liz Mazakian, you know, Mersha Conley from UCLA, Kathy Noth is on my junior national team. And I have plays, A1, A2, A3, B1, B2, B3. Everything is single numbers in front, double numbers behind. Not like what the men have, not the five, you know, seven-point system, nine-point system, the A, B, C system. I've gone through all those. Right. They All the players come into my practice, and they all have their fingers taped. All of them. No, normally it's, you know, middle, outside, you know, maybe once in a while somebody else. They had all the plays written on their fingers. A1 was a 5, 1, 2, 12. A2 was this. On this side was B, so that they could learn the plays. But let me tell you why I utilize plays. And anytime I'm doing consulting now with colleges is not every player hits a particular set the way it should be hit. So find the set that a hitter hits well and then increase their toolbox by using other hits. And it's like Danielle says, no one does a, a double fake. No one does a pump. No one does a slide to the left side. Nobody does. Why? Mm-hmm. Because I think that's why it's easy to block. Yeah. Because if you know, okay, what was different this year? Oh boy, now sets right side, right side. But why? Because we know our left side player is not wanting to block. And you can score points and the defense. And I said, the reason why you change the plays, whether it's a cross, an X, a double quick, whatever you call it, is your hitters, your blockers must, one, think and adjust. And the defensive players now have to adjust. So if I run a straight play, let's say outside the five, uh, one in a quick set behind. Right. Okay. I run it first. Okay. Then I run a left side cross. I go left front gets one middle hits a five. Okay. Now my blockers have to change. My defense have to play. So I do it because I'm going to score points. Yeah, of course. So it's sometimes it's not the, the set or the player that scores a point. It's the play that you ran to make the defense get in a position where they've got to figure out who's going to get the set. Very, 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 very well said. Very well said. And I think uh, also good coaches know, know about, as far as like set location at the, where the hitter's strengths plays to the needs of the team, the, uh-huh. the, the coach has to know if the block likes that set more than the hitter does. I mean, but that's a whole different uh, challenge, right? But, right? but there's also something in all of sports, basketball, football, or whatever, where you give a particular play to your best player even if the other team sees it coming right that per- you got to let that person use this like jordan if you like some of the games you know he's taking the last shot and they right. already know he's taking the last shot, right? 1992 Olympics, um, set five, Norichi Nagagaichi and Steve Timmons had like 50 kills apiece, right? It's 14-14. Right. You know Timmons, is the, expect Timmons to get that red set. They, they expected it and he got it anyway because like you said, the importance of giving a setter where 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 that's a, a preferentially and strengths playing to the needs and, and the result is they win is awesome. A few historical notes about his uh, uh, Danielle Scott because I wanted to go back to her because she's amazing. Uh-huh. It's five-time Olympian. I'm um, 
Two things. One, I wanted to cite the two males that I remember. One is Giovanni from Brazil. He was in five Olympics right. from gold 92 to gold 2004. Right. And Andrea Gianni uh, uh, played the, all, all the same Olympics as them. And right. it's so cool that they got to meet, you know. I mean, they uh -huh. were on the bench by the time 2004 came, but the Italy and Brazil met in the final. So pretty cool caveat about that. Right. Um, and 6-3. For all the people that don't know what the hell we're talking about, 6-3, just go on YouTube and Cuba in the, in the 1996 Olympics for at least three of the sets that I watched ran a 6-3. Uh -huh. So if anyone wants to know what it looks like, and some of the coaches are like, wow, I, I've never heard of that. or Because right. uh, you were talking about 6-4, but I'm going to, I, I right. mean, 6-4 is more mind-blowing. So 6-3, <laughs> uh, uh, for visual perspectives, go on YouTube, look up try to look up 1996 olympics cuba and and they didn't even jump set they they they, they ran it because right the, they had so much talent like we don't need the option anything <laughs> you know right. um but i just wanted to cite that so from danielle scott i want to go to flo hyman huh? i want you to tell us because i know you know we're supposed to treat every player the same but i know Fly, flo hyman has a special place in your heart tell my audience what flo hyman means to you and who she meant to you. Ah, well, I'm going to do this. This is... She's like, next is, question. <laughs> yeah, man, this is like flow. Okay, so remember this. So I went to undergraduate school at University of Northern Colorado. And uh, during that time, I had a black supervising teacher for my uh, in John F. Kennedy Senior High School. And she was probably my first exposure of being around uh, a minority or a black. Now, there were some people in a town in Banning, which is right outside of Beaumont, where the majority of people uh, in Banning were black, but there weren't any black people that lived in my town. And so when I went to college, I ended up with a supervising teacher that was black that was just uh, uh, made such an impression on me because my mother always, she was the type of person that says, uh, no matter what, everybody's equal, you know, your friends, you know, it doesn't matter, religion. You just treat everybody as if they were your sister. And you treat them with all respect, it doesn't matter. Uh, you respect elders, you know, you, it, I mean, you just, it was a lot of respect, you know, you just didn't talk back, you didn't do those things, you were always helping the neighbors. Yeah, we call so, it decency. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, uh, polite and yeah, respect. And so she really kind of brought me into what it was really first like. And she says, you know, when you're playing inside with, and I'll never forget the story, she says, when you're playing inside with the dolls, we're outside running and playing games. And somehow that hit me. And then I moved to Chicago and I had three black athletes on my team. And I also played with Vernita Thomas, who played on the, she was the first black Olympic player in the sixties. She's for, now passed away. Also for, a very, for the women, good. for the women, the men have yet to have one, but go ahead. And she was an exceptional official also in Hawaii, but um, Vernita played on the team with Lily uh, Grossman also. Lily got cut from the national team, but she would have been on one of the 60 teams, 64 and 68. And I just thought to myself, you know, for me, it was like, you know, dang, they could, you know, they jump easy. I mean, I'm having to work hard to jump my 28 inches, you know, and it was, 
and it was so much fun because I had had that background with Virginia McCrimmon at John F. Kennedy Senior High School. When then, when I moved to Houston, um, Flo ended up in, in Houston and Marilyn McGreevy, who played, you know, the 60 Olympics, 64, 68 Olympics, she was her uh, guardian because she hadn't finished high school yet. So she moved to Houston and Flo was 6'5". And she was, you know, basketball track and they've got a, you know, they got a gym named after her in, you know, in California. And she actually uh, is buried there in Dye when she died of Marfan syndrome in 1986. She really, it was like, we just connected because, you know, it's like, how do you relate to someone? I mean, I come from a family that I lived in a, we were, I was born at home. My dad delivered me in a run one room house with dirt floor, no running water, no bathroom. So I came from a place where I know what it's like not to have anything. And I, and I'm not saying that that's the case always in minorities, but many times that I've recruited and I was probably the first college coach that really spent a lot of time recruiting black athletes and flow was a major factor in that because she and I were playing with EPU at the time. And it was like, I never thought of her as, you know, being black, you know, she, she just, but I said to myself, Hey, if I'm going to do anything and I want to be successful, I want to win. Well, at Houston, you know, I had to do the recruiting and they, you had to do auditions. Auditions during that time was you come to my campus and you get to try out. They do those at NIA schools, but that's how you did it. You got an audition. And, you know, when she was coming at Houston, I was playing also at the same time. And she got, she got my first scholarship that I had at University of Houston and she would not take the full scholarship. She wanted to divide it with some other people that needed the scholarship too. So that was a starting of that. Besides the fact is that I taught her and her boyfriend how to water ski and she about killed me during that time and tried to teach her how to surf a little bit in Hawaii. And when she was up on the board, she almost killed me. She, the board almost hit me on the head as we stopped. But the history is this, that I believe that. And when I said at the very beginning, when we first started talking that there's so many opportunities that my own minority athletes don't receive because it's such a big financial commitment to play club and to do private lessons and to do all of those other things. But I actually believed that I could make a difference. And since 1972, and it was always a priority for me. And Flo, she had another year eligibility. Rita had another year eligibility. I'll never forget. You know, you you like to hear stories. Well, I'm going to tell you something you can tell it for many times. And it's a story that's true. I mean, I actually tell true stories. Sometimes people like to embellish stories. Yeah. We're playing in sea 1976. Sea stories. In Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. And Mick Haley's not coaching there. It's uh, you're not going to believe it, but uh, the basketball coach, Jody Conrad, was coaching volleyball. Okay. <laughs> she coached volleyball at University of Texas at Arlington. She coached volleyball at Sam Houston. Then when she went to Texas, then they replaced her and Linda Lowry became the coach. But Jody was one of the most successful basketball coaches in the state of Texas and the U.S. She was like at the same level with Pat Head. Well, we're playing at this tournament. Okay. So Rose isn't playing yet. She's in high school and we're getting ready to play UCLA who are Terry Congdon's playing, right? 
and we're playing and Flo decides that day she ain't going to fix her hair. So she wears her bandana around her hair because she says, I'm not fixing my hair. And I said, okay, whatever, you know, it's, it's not like we have a dress code, just wear a red bandana, right? Cause we were Houston. We're in the, we're playing in Sandy Lynn and who's no longer alive and Katrinka Crawford, who was my assistant coach on the, my junior national team. She's playing as crazy as ever on the court. Flo goes down to roll to get a ball up. She digs it up. Katrinka steps on her scarf and pulls it off. Now, most players would keep playing, right? No, 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 no. Flo's on the court fixing her bandana that Katrinka threw to her. During the rally, we're playing with five people. And Flo is fixing her bandana. And we beat UCLA at that that tournament in, in Austin. And that next day, Terry Congdon said, oh, we didn't feel good. We were sick. We didn't do this. And yeah. I'm thinking to myself, well, we played with five when Flo was fixing yeah. her bandana. You are what your record says you are. That's what I that's what I tell that coach. And your record says you lost to us. And, <laughs> and, and that's, a true, that's a true story. I like that. Well, I, Flo, she was humble. She was, she would be the, Ari would get so mad and say, Ruth, go get your player. I'll never <laughs> forget him. <laughs> go get your player. She was signing autographs. She wouldn't leave until the last person. That's, she signed the autograph. I really, and that's the um, class act. Like anyone, uh, any one of my mutual friends, um, because I'm, I'm what you call a generational tweener at 52 years old. So I've, I've known people okay. in, in your your group and I know the people in mine and, I'm, and I, know, I know the people after, right after mine. So everyone that's ever met her, you know, I can, I'll drop names, maybe Helena from New York. She's a, she's more of a beach player, but huh. met Flo Hyman. Um, huh. Lori, who passed away of cancer, uh, um, who was a school teacher in New York, but played at the high level. Huh. Uh, Camille. You know, uh, again, most of these girls evolved to the beach, but all of them knew who Flo Hyman was. When Flo passed away, that was a national headline. So, because that, that was a testament to how I'm from New York. In uh, '86, mm -hmm. she passed away. I'm like, what? Right. What's volleyball? Well, and who's Flo you know Hyman? Oh, that's her. I'll, I'll tell you the story about the Marfin Foundation. Mm -hmm. They had their offices in a garage. Mm -hmm. And when Flo passed away, that was the most, she was on the front cover, Sports Illustrated, if you remember. Yep. They had never addressed Marfin because they didn't really know exactly what it was. And that kicked off really what Marfin syndrome really was. And to this day, we do the Flo Hyman Collegiate Cup at University of Houston, and the Marfin Foundation comes out, and they do all this early detection screening now for her. But... Good. I got to tell you one more. You got this. I got to This is why this we're here. Story. Tell as many okay. as you want. We are, I do not have practice <laughs> and oh. I do not have dinner until 630 Pacific time. So, <laughs> okay. So we're in Pasadena, Texas, which a lot of people do, do not realize that the women USA team had a full-time training center before the men. Yeah. However, in this country, everybody thinks the men got these things before the women. That's, that's not true. Why would anyone we even start, think that? Marilyn McGreevy and Mary Jo Pepler is the re and Mary Jo Pepler won the first women superstars, won $50,000 against Billie Jean King, Wyoming Atias in the Superdome when, when Bobby Riggs and, and Billie Jean King, remember the big deal with this battle of the sexes? Yep. Well, Flo was in the 
training center because our EPU team, the majority of us became the USA national team. Plus there were invited other players that became part of that. But Bo called me, it was like, I don't know, it was like 11 o'clock at night. We had finished, you know, practice and we played in a gym that had no air conditioning and you had to put the big ice chunks with the fans so that we'd go through four and five shirts, you know, in the gym, but we never had in Pasadena, Texas. If you know anything about Texas and the humidity, dry heat, it was terrible. Yeah. So she called me and she goes, you need to come get me. And I says, what do you mean? You got, I got a stroke. (laughs) She says, I'm in jail. I go, what? You're in jail. I said, she goes, yes, I got caught for speeding. I said, that comet can't even drive, go that fast. No. I go down and I said, what are you doing? She goes, I wasn't signing that ticket because I was not speeding. So she refused to sign the ticket, not knowing that they were going to arrest her and put her in jail. And I paid my $100. And luckily, I knew somebody that was a judge at the time. But that was the type of person. You do not do that. You, I'm not, I didn't speed. I'm not signing that. That's exactly what she would do. And I wonder maybe if that led to a legal question in her mind. If I sign this, um, it's admitting that I sped. And and if I try to challenge it in court, uh, um, right? I can't challenge it in court if I sign it. Right. Exactly. Because so sign the ticket or go to jail. (laughs) That's exactly right. So if you think about all the things that she did, it was always about the team. The, the first, okay. Donna DiVeroni, um, Carol Mann, the golfer from Houston, uh, Donna Lopiano, and the Women's Sports Foundation named the Women's Sports Day, which is coming up this week, after her. That's how it first yeah. started. Yeah, it's February It's February every year, yep. right? Women's Sports yep. Foundation? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And they used to name the best athlete of all sports after her, but that only lasted seven years. I'm not sure why they took her name off, but, you know, they took her name off, which I don't necessarily think that they should have done that. No, but but, but every seven years, man, you got some someone like Flo who's just, I guess they're just trying to give women their shine. They would never well, do that for men. Men men that's etched in stone forever, but you're right. They're treating women okay, differently around here. question for you. Yeah. Have you seen Order of the Black Eagle? What's it called? Order of the Black Eagle. No. Flo is in that movie. She's a knife specialist, and her nickname is Spike. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> Order of the Black Eagle. And you, can, you can find that. You, I have it on her website. It's flowhyman.com. So yeah. any, anybody wants to learn anything about flow, it's on her website. Yeah. But yes, she was in a movie. She actually was starting her acting career mm-hmm. prior to her going back to Japan that last year. Yeah. And big up to the Women's Sports Foundation, too, for doing that. I um, I worked in a cardiology practice for 17 years, and 15 of those, there was a Dr. Holly Anderson. It was a two-doctor uh-huh. two, yeah. two cardiology practice. She uh-huh. was uh, president of the Women's Sports Foundation in 96 yeah. or 97 or whatever. And yeah. Holly McPeak won because of me. <laughs> ah. I was in the office every single day. You're voting for Holly. 
You're voting uh -huh. for Holly, right? And you need to let everybody know who this woman is. And she was in the Olympics. She was, yes. You know, and, and at the time, Beach was still new. That was the first year for Beach. Right. And I think Holly went to two more. And I said, this is a woman that's about the kids. I'm like, you got Gabby yeah. Reese, you know, who will come and shoot a commercial with kids. But when the cameras leave, Gabby's out too, you know? Uh, um, not a slight on her, but that's a reality. Uh, um, but then there's Holly. NBC cameras come, they interview her, the cameras leave. She's still there. She's about the kids. I said, that woman, some people say it and some people have a good image. And there's some people that are out there, even now to this day, out there showing it. She's out there right now. <laughs> she has right, the, uh, right. she, I think she has a lead with Eric from Moana. But remember we had a conversation, a brief conversation about glorified babysitters and real coaches. She's a real yeah. G, man. Yo, she's got, she doesn't just have street credit. So, but I just wanted to cite that because you were talking about Win Sports Foundation and, and, and like volleyball players. I basically sh almost shamed the president. Her name was Holly, Holly Anderson. Uh, yeah. Um, and she's, uh, she's very much into sports. She's, you know, she's right. won some golf tournaments and, um, and she's, you know, has a great relationship with sports medicine doctors like Jordan Metzl, you know, who's a knee guy yeah. and all those yeah. guys. Um, yeah, get well, you. Well, you know what, Jason, they're interesting is um, the one person, well, there's actually a couple people, uh, Dr. Carol Cars, who's passed away uh, a couple years ago. She was an Illinois AD. Mm -hmm. She is the one that instituted the Big Ten Network and also was the big supporter of women in sports. And she was with AI along with Donna Lopiano, who used to be with women's sports, but she let, she's the one that changed women in sports when she was an athletic director at University of Texas. Forever, actually. How about forever? Do they have a statue of her? Because I'll tell you this right now. Women's volleyball on the Big Ten Network is the third most viewed sport, only right. behind men's basketball and men's football. I'll say that again. Where's, where's my camera? It is the third <laughs> most viewed sport on the Big Ten Network, which is the strongest right. volleyball conference in the United States of America. Things have changed, haven't they? Yeah. <laughs> it but, ain't the pack but, anymore. Uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> but what Donna did for women in sports at Texas, Tell and me. they've done some documentaries, and they've, they've actually, you can see them on Netflix now, and Longhorn Network, but where she started and putting the salaries and, and making women in sports get the same opportunities. And now she's with, the, you know, the Knight Commission. You know, you're familiar with that. Now, they actually, she's doing all this Title IX. And, you know, it's it's like, for instance, that's someone, somebody asked me a question, Ruth, what do you think about Title IX? Has it really changed? And I said, no, the men get more and we still get a little bit more. Has it really changed? No, because I uh, see, I but, that. you know, you've got to remember I look back on what we did in 1981 when I was at LSU and I had to steal the tape for ankles from the tape room because they didn't want women to have that. And I had to take shorts from the, the main store and have the secretary cut them and make them bun huggers, you know, that we wore. And I bought my first Adidas shoes for my LSU volleyball team. So when you really say, has there a lot of things changed? Yes, but there still is such, it, it took 50 years. Yeah, you still got a it, long way to go, but to, to, oh. for someone to say that, it's, that it has not changed is being disingenuous. I'm sorry, I got to push back on that. You look at the scholarships offer for women's volleyball, there's multiple scholarships. For men's volleyball, there's, for Division One. there's only 4.5 scholarships. So I understand right. women's volleyball is there to offset football so you have an equal distribution, educating people on what Title IX is. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, um, but 
I'm telling you, women are just smarter than men, dude. Women are just smarter <laughs> than men. They really are. Look, the, the reason why NCAA Beach Volleyball, uh, um, when, um, sorry, when that became uh, NCAA Special. sport, beach volleyball, uh -huh. all of yeah. the club sizes have tripled because the girls know it's an investment. It's a chance for them to, for someone to pay for their school. And when they get out, most smart girls, if they're not, if they're not, they can't be among the best in pros, they're going to get a real job. While the, while the guys are sitting there trying to, trying to get their, a slice of that 4.5. And then they're in a freaking qualifier, a hundred teams, teams deep living in their daddy's garage. Let me tell you something. Women are just smarter than we are. Okay. So, 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 so that's an example of how women uh, uh, look. They still got a long way to go, and there's still a ton of unfairness going on that goes beyond some of the things that I talked to Lori ok Okamura, like off the yeah. record, off yeah. the record about. She's she's the conscience yeah. of volleyball right now. But man, uh, I, I think you, I think women have gone a long way because now men have conceded that they're smarter than we are. In the eighties, and you couldn't. In the eighties, you couldn't tell a guy that a woman was smarter than him. Now it's like, dude, dude, they, <laughs> now, what are you okay. talking about? They so got the drop. A, they have the drop on all of us. There's more of them, and they don't have to fight fair. <laughs> all right, here's a quote for you that you'll like: mm -hmm. "Old school ideas make it happen and become new school methods." Yes, but look, look, look what I just talked about. Like, yeah. if you look at the Manhattan Beach, the the main uh, the qualifier to get into the draw. There's only 30 teams for women. There was 105 or something like I'm, I'm exaggerating the number because it was, right. because I think I think it's less. I think no, I think it's more than what I'm actually saying. There are 105. Why? Because women they figured it out. I'm gonna go get a job or I'm gonna I'm gonna go get a real contract playing indoor. You know, Japan's got a good league. The Italian league's got good mob money. So uh, um <laughs> and um they're just smarter. They figured it out, man. <laughs> and we're still living in our mom's garage. <laughs> Assuming we win the tournament. That's assuming we win. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, but you know what? Yeah. There's still, this is still, even though mm -hmm. the women might be getting more opportunities. Yes. Um, when I was at University of Houston and I wanted to raise my money uh -huh. for our off-season program, mm -hmm. I paid for it myself personally, not the university. I personally paid yeah. for it. I got audited for it. Well, said you, it could, was you could back then. Dude, dude, you could wait tables and put yourself through college back then. Okay, you so can't, you can't anyhow, do that now. <laughs> I raised money and I raised it for the men and and shared it for the women <laughs> because I knew that they would give me money for the men before the women. That's, that's the seventies. Wow, that's a gangster move on your part. And you, you, yeah, you but, had. But I was an advisor to the man. I was coaching Flo's oh, boyfriend's team too. Coach, you, you know, had so. you had the drop on so many people back then. You know, you had, you were 10 years ahead. You had the drop on all of those fools, you know, uh, um, I'm not insulting them, but I'm saying, um, and I'm not even trying to say you fooled them, but you, you kind of did. <laughs> you got them. Well, you got them you to get what, what you wanted. <laughs> you think of this, Jason, if volleyball, this is what my mother said, write down everything that you do so that someday you can look back and see that you actually did do a lot. And I'm glad I did that because you forget about so many things that you get engaged in. But I do believe this, that I've always allowed myself to look at different professions like coaching. I was a secretary. I did 
uh, the screening of They Shoot Horses and interviewed uh, all the cast in California. I worked in a factory. I worked in a, doing, doing peaches. I worked in a private Jewish resort in Highland Springs. I worked with Special Olympics. I worked in the marketing. I mean, I, I was in the telecom business. I think that when you really, you know, you start really learning, and I'll tell you, the person that changed my coaching philosophy and the way I approach things was my general manager of the professional team, Dallas Bells, in when I did Major League Volleyball. He changed the way I looked and the way I approached. He said, remember this, in training, you train. When you get to matches, it's showtime. Yes, that's because that's when it counts. And it goes back to what I'm saying. You are what your record says you are. It's a cold fish thing to say, but doesn't it come full circle? Doesn't it come full circle? And you know what? All those other jobs that you did that shaped who you are today that were just character builders that that were designed to to shape this this extraordinary human being you are right now. There, there are people that, that are lifelong coaches and I'll never do that, right? Like I'm in, I'm, I'm in school for acting. Those kids are child actors, even the professors, they're academics, that's all they know, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm 33 years old, I'm a returning adult student and, and this professor is trying to give me this uncomfortable speech about when you get into the real world, this and you get into the real world, that. I'm like, dude, by the time I went back to school, I'm a Gulf War vet. <laughs> Right. You know what I'm saying? I, I served court papers for a law firm. I did iron work for my dad at age 14, you know, and I was in a cardiology practice that, by the way, was putting me through school. So in the real world, what? And I'm not trying to say it makes you more noble than most. Uh, no, no, I am trying to say that makes you more noble than most. Uh, it's These things are character builders and it does. I'm not. I'm, it's, I'm trying. I'm not comfortable saying you're better than this person, but I'm trying to say that that shapes better human beings on a general level. And yeah. you are the sample you size. And you are the let sample size you. of a lifetime. Yeah, but let me tell you what the influence that did on me. Because I always felt like mm, I never, I never stood up and coached. I always sit down on the bench. Players always knew what I thought because of the way my actions were, and. When I finished coaching the pros, it was the most fun I had ever had in my life. And I decided to go back into coaching. I did two years of Iowa public television color analysts. And then I went to Iowa and did consulting because my former graduate assistant from LSU was there and she was retiring. And I said, I want to get back into coaching because I feel that I've changed and I recognize that change. I had like four players on my Dallas Bells team that asked me, why wasn't I like this meaning with the Dallas Bells when I was at LSU? Because I didn't know that I was probably not that much fun. And so when I went back to Iowa, I decided that I was going to change. Now I can tell you this, you talk about rule changes, you know, who was the first person that stood up in coaching and it was legal because the NCAA had to prove me because I had had three back surgeries. So they approved that I could stand and coach. So then everybody else says, okay, then why can't we stand and coach? You know, and then, you know, all of a sudden other people in the big 10 were coached. But my point is I became a cheerleader on the bench because I felt like I had learned from Gary Carroll, which I'm indebted for the rest of my life because I wish that I would have had somebody when I was younger, starting out coaching that I would have had someone say, Ruth, 
it's cheerleading. It's about having fun. When someone tells me that someone doesn't have time to talk because they're so involved, yeah, they're making, you know, 300, 400,000 more than I ever made. And maybe I would be different now. I don't think so. But I spent time with my, the nine and 10 year old cheerleaders I had on the sideline because they wanted me to make sure that their toes were pointed when they were doing the cartwheels. Because when you go to a game, you already know what you're going to do. I mean, I think of what I learned from that. And the other thing I learned from that is we went to go play Illinois at Illinois, which was in a small gym. They were final four. They were always top four. Mike Hebert was there. And I asked the players, what are the things that bothered you the most about playing at Illinois? Well, we never won. Okay. Did you ever score any points? Well, we always lost three zero. Okay. What else? Oh, they were always taking pictures. Okay. So I tried to take all of those things away. And I said, Mike, can you not do this? And I didn't let them warm up, you know, it hitting hit the net. I made them hit backcourt. I wouldn't let them see them. Now we're 15 minutes, three zero. We beat them. Walked out. Wow. Mental. It is mentally preparing because when you really think of this, this is stuff that the mental part was always something because I had enough hours to have a master's degree in psychology, but I never, I should have, Hey, if I'd have been a psychologist, I'd never run out of business these days. No, please. I, I, yeah. But business, what, business will be a, bo- a booming. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's, I think that if I had to say something to younger coaches is that, I never did yelling and screaming and all of that. I, I, I did say a bad word one time at LSU and it's because the girl wouldn't roll, but that was the only time I ever did it. But outside of that, it wasn't about, and I think you've got to figure out, I think there's always doubts about what you know when you lose. When you win, you think you don't need to change. But when you win, everybody else is trying to figure out how to beat you. So you need to look at what you're doing to make adjustments. And I think most coaches won't change because they're afraid to lose. And I I just think that, you know, you, 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 and ask for help. Why do you think, you know, I wish I would have had That's such a big challenge coach for everybody. Sorry, go ahead, finish. But that's a big challenge for uh, knowing when to ask for help. Um, Yeah. And I just, you know, you, you've, you've got to get to a point. I mean, if I'm talking in that, why do you think it took me seven years to develop a volleyball for ages 10 and under? Okay. And people say, Oh, Ruth, you don't need to have a different ball. And I go, Oh yes, you do. Because number one is the majority of people that play volleyball age 10 and under are prissy girls and it hurts. I'm not playing. Yeah. It's me here. Ow. I'm not playing. And Ow. You're playing with, Ow. Yes. <laughs> and you're playing with a 12 U ball. It yeah. hurts. Agreed. So we developed a ball that, was lightweight. It had great texture. It was different size and it was the color. We went through like 17 different balls to decide on what kind of ball we're going to need. And everybody always says, Oh, Ruth, why do you, one guy who's a director of a club who's been nominated as director of the club of the year said to me, Ruth, why can't you just do what everybody else does and make it better? And I said, because I don't believe what everybody else does is right. You have to do what's right. I mean, you have to do what's right as if your job depends on it too. Look, something I learned in the military, and this is something you could teach people, is never put yourself in a position where you're responsible for something, but you're not calling the shots, right? You have to be, right? If it's your ass on the line, <laughs> this is the first time I'm cursing or whatever, but right. <laughs> but um, if it's your behind on the line, right? 
uh, uh, as far as wins and losses and in this cold world, you're, you are what your record says you are. Why not make the decisions that determine the wins and loss on your on the sword you're supposed to fall on or carry the battle with you? Right. You know, it's the most important thing I learned in the military. Never put yourself in a position where someone else is in charge, but you're responsible, you, you know, because that's that happens in the army a lot. No, do it that way. Do it that way. And then then when then when the, then when like I was a generator mechanic and they, they right. wanted me to do a late service to wait, wait another day and this and that. And when it broke, they're like, well, that's the mechanic. And I'm like, right. but you just told me to you just told me to not. <laughs> you know, he just told me not to whatever. And I mean, he's an officer, right? You got to listen to him. But and I'm like, OK, I'm getting out of here because <laughs> that's the reason why I was leaving. <laughs> OK, my, my I honorably fulfilled my contract. But um, you stumbled onto something very, very important about winners, about winning, about selective amnesia, about um, example, Hunter High School again, small sample uh -huh. size. High school is easy for everyone to understand. Not too, right. not too complicated. Uh, my last year as a coach, or, or when all my kids were seniors, we were we had a thirty-eight and one record. We won the PSALs, and Madison Square Garden MSG gave me coach of the year. So it was a great, great championship year. Uh, seven freshmen had them all the way for four years. You know what I'm saying? I cut yeah. juniors and seniors in between, and 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 had these kids build their their brand. We were thirty-eight and one, but I want to share this with someone, and I took too long to do this, and I'm sorry. Out of the forty, there were forty-two sets decided by two points we were 39 and three in sets decided by two points wow. and that's the difference between being 38 and one or well, i don't know whatever 25 and 15 and maybe not winning winning the championship or this or that so mm -hmm. and it's so weird because like you said when you win that that people don't think you learn from winning because the only thing anyone remembers is that you won or you lost, you know? But something else you, you said that was really, really, really cool. Like if you're trained in the moment, there are other things that you find intriguing. Like Joe uh -huh. Montana for NFL football, they have this something in the NFL called the drive. And this is like right. 82, 83, right? And he has like 90 yards to go. It's like a minute 56 and he's in the huddle. And you know what he says? John, I thought I saw John Candy. <laughs> John Candy's in the crowd and, I, and I'm sure everyone in the huddle's like, what? <laughs> Just Joe Cool, because his mind, through repetition and through trust in the right. coaching system, his mind through through that constant uh, uh, training, he does over and over and over again. Uh, for the young people out there, it's like bl brushing your teeth. Do you get up and think about brushing your teeth or you just get up and brush? The answer is the right. latter, man. You just you just get up and brush. And that's what Joe did, you know? Oh man, we're, yeah. we're we're winding down a little bit, but do we do oh, we? Oh, but I got no, but no, I got please. a quote for you. Tell me. Okay, so I'm a big quote person because you know I get on this role of of develop because I like other people's quotes, but I they don't relate exactly unless I write it myself. So over the last since COVID, you know, because of all of the issues of coaches and players and parents talking to administration and coaches being fired and uh, you know. Whether it's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. So my regular quote is, love what you do, do what you love for as long as you love it, okay? But I'm thinking, now I'm watching all this is going on, so I decide I'm coming up with something that's more appropriate, and that's what this is. The life of a coach is no longer the love for the sport. 
It is the passion to survive for the sport you love. God bless. Amen and amen. I'm not that that man. I had two quotes, but I'm not even going to say that because that is um that is a mic drop. So we skip in mine. <laughs> I I will text them to you because no that that's this is momentum and you and and that was yours. That was that was fantastic. And I'm glad because I'm going to replay this and like write that down and we'll use that as a sales pitch for this episode. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's, it it's, is our life force. It's been fun. Yeah, let's um I want to plug one more coach, someone that we know mutually, Mario Trebich. Oh yes, absolutely. So educating our fans at home, Mario Trebich is not someone you can find on the Google search button. Very much there he is. That's a great picture of this guy. He is what we what we call volleyball ghost. The best coaches out there on the Olympic level. If you Google search him, you're not gonna find him. Right? right, Flugen Wagner. I was just telling you before the podcast, who won the gold for helped won the gold for German men beach, yeah, and then German women 2012 2016 one gold medal per gender. That guy, Google search him. I'll wait. Hit the pause button on this. I'll wait. You're not gonna find him. Same thing with Mario Trebich. Mario oh. was on the women's national team in '84, Soviet Union in '88 as an assistant. Um, 92 was on the Netherlands and 96 as a part-time assistant with the Netherlands. So that's three silvers and a gold for, for this gentleman who understood the psychology, understood ball trajectory, and was an absolute volleyball nerd. Um, I'm going to give you the floor, but I want to say something cool about him. I met him in okay. in the Netherlands. Uh, no, I met him in Barcelona because I was there for the Olympics. 92? Uh, yeah, I was playing pro and then uh -huh. the military, we had this hush-hush mission with the Italian army. So I was serving in the military at the same time. So they yanked me off the team, went to Italy, and then on an end around, uh, wound up in Barcelona. And uh -huh. I got to talk to him about set trajectory. And he told me, I was an outside hitter at the time, and he told me I should set. He said, you're 6'1". He says, what's your wingspan? My wingspan is 6'8". Uh -huh. So um, I'm also <laughs> left-handed. So, uh, And because of him, it changed the way my volleyball career was going. I watched videos of Jeff Stork for two years because we had the same body type and yeah. became a setter because of him. Okay, that's uh -huh. 92. Fast forward to 2001, City Tech. I'm the head coach. He's a referee. Pick a card. Which card do you want? I'm like the yellow. Yellow, fine, right? Another card, City College. He's a down ref. Tells a top ref to give me a, a red card. And he's like, say another word. I'm like, protest. We had this relationship where we both talk with our hands. So uh -huh. if you're watching from a distance, you're like, these two guys are going to throw down. <laughs> but, we're, but that's not how it was. We were just passionate. And we spoke with uh -huh. this emotionally heightened voice, but didn't really mean anything by it. He's, he's, um... I think more him than he thinks of me. He's a busy dude, but he's one of my mentors because uh -huh. he might not remember this or not, but he has a memory like a steel trap, so he might. Um, the Bob Batucci camps that we did at City Tech, City Tech, I was there all three years with him and, and had, had lunch with him. And the Chinese coach was there too. The Chinese coach right. was there too. Uh, um, so, and, and then 2010, I'm coaching his kid at Hunter High School. So then, and, and I'll shut the door on that. So talk, talk to me a little bit about Mario and like what he means to you and just, oh, Mario. just, just the, how, how fun a guy this he is. This is what I remember besides this picture of us in Colorado Excellent. Springs. That is so I'm going to go back and in 75 when Ari took, or Ari Solinger, Dr. Ari Solinger was a coach of the 1984 Olympic team and was the first Olympic team that won a medal. And I think sometimes people forget that. And we were training eight hours a day, seven days a week. 
I mean, that's that's no joke. It's the only way you can play side out. It's the only way you can play side out. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) And so Mario came in as an assistant and he stayed back with the USAB team and trained them in Pasadena. But he could pick me, take like this and pick me up and he goes, Ruth, you are a good setter. And he, he put, because he was so, and he was so dedicated that he continued with Ari. I know I remember doing, I think he did coach the Pan American game men's team. And he says, Ruth, you're the only person that I know that in a few minutes can tell me every player out there that I should select because you're good at picking talent. And I said, okay, Mario. And I just loved working with him. Okay. But there's one point that is critical in when you said in Barcelona in 92, you remember who upset the Italians, Holland. Ari was coaching Mario and they, and Italy had bought out all the tickets in 92 Barcelona. You could not get a ticket. I was there because I was doing a special Olympic event with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the crowd was Italian heavy. Every yes. time an Italian hitter hit a ball, Gracci, Gianni, Andrea Zorzi, Zorzi, the entire you would you would have thought we were in an Italian league. But sorry, go ahead. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and a lot of people never heard that story. But Mario was what you was an epitome of what you said. Loyal, Ian Ari got along so good because of all the things they had gone through. You think of where Ari came from, the kibbutz, and then you think of where Mario came through. Right, KGB, all the during the time of Russia. I mean, they had a lot to exchange and they loved the sport. And I think when you really think about what that quote, it's you I love the sport, but if I were a coach now, you you gotta have a passion to survive because look at now, there are none of us left. Who's mm-hmm. gone? Okay. Tom, Colorado State, you know, Arizona, North Carolina, you know, they're gone. So now you've got a whole new group of coaches. All right. So Mario was the assistant at, guess where? St. John's forever. Yeah. I I thought he was still there, but he's not. No, he, he says no COVID. I'm not getting. No, no, no. That's a whole nother story, but, but. Yeah, absolutely. But anyhow. He was in JoJo. You, the way she talks about him, I said, I had no idea Mario had been there that long. Oh, Mario, he's just like a fixture in this. He says he's so good with the players. And yes. What a personality yep. that love and still loves the sport and still continues to contribute. Yep. And so many people really have not even known so many people and, like and the Mario. kids at st john's they still talk i'm, I'm a new yorker so yeah. uh, um so you play in like some of the co-ed leagues or you watch yeah. the women's league for new york urban or whatever uh-huh. a lot of these kids graduate so they still want to play in competitive division one leagues uh, uh you had st john's had like three or four girls and i'm like what do you think of mario and they're like oh i love the way he says focus a uh, focus right because <laughs> he, he said focus like it was a curse yeah and i'm just like yeah he's 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 an amazing human being i'm glad we and had a- let me tell yeah. you he was one of the best referees that I've ever had. Yes, uh, until he couldn't see some of those balls, man. Some of the, some of the balls is just the eyesight thing. And like some of my kids would, would who didn't know who he was, was like, oh my god, this guy doesn't know what he's doing out there. And I grab him, and I'm like, watch your mouth. 
you know, show yeah. some respect if you knew. If he missed it because his eyes aren't the same anymore, I get that. But let's 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 know or what we talk. Let's know what we're talking about here before you know. Before you talk, you you say that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You know. You know uh, though, yeah. he always believed. Let him play. Let him play. Yes, he is a let him play ref. Yeah. And, and, and you know, as a top ref, it's good because he has a whole crew to back him up, right? The bottom ref watches back row violation uh, or rotation, right? The line judges got touch, antenna, foot fault. Really, a top, if you have a good crew, all the top ref has to do is literally watch the ball and occasionally yeah. call a lift or a double. So, so Mario had Bruce. Remember Bruce, a tall Bruce, yeah. uh, um, yeah. always had a good crew of people all the way up to Russell, who's, who's now um, older now, but Russell was, was a ref coming up back then. But um, one thing I learned about Mario that I give coaching advice, and I want you to finish with coaching advice, because uh -huh. I'm just going to do coaching advice on one level, and you get to okay. do coaching advice on whatever level you want, NCAA, pro, junior. So um, let me go first. Okay. Um, someone asked me what... Um, what do I have to do to, um, no, um, I want to be, I want to teach kids at the collegiate level. I want to coach, actually coach kids at the collegiate level. And uh -huh. I said, if you want to coach kids, be an assistant. Because <laughs> head coaching is a pain in the butt. It's why Mario could have coached St. John's, but he didn't. Right. He, he didn't and, want to. And something I learned from him, if you really want to be about that life where it's coaching and only coaching, and if you're fortunate enough to be in a, a good, a, not a good old boy circle, but a connection where they need you just for that strength, right. don't for sure don't be a head coach. Be an assistant. That's just the collegiate level. Floor is yours. Advice, coaching advice. People come. Well, up. one last story about Mario. Please, yeah. A friend of mine here is an official, and he says, "I'll never tell you. I'll never forget. Mm -hmm. I've got a chance to be honored to officiate with Mario." And what he said to me was, he says. Just remember, mm -hmm. we will get along as long as you don't call anything. <laughs> and that was to the second referee. <laughs> and that's yeah. And that's a true story. But uh, coaching advice, I would say this. The place where people are missing is the youth level. Because what happens is all of the experienced coaches always want to be at the level where they seemingly think the glory is. Yes. But the reward Amen. is being at, and I'll get, tell you one statement one parent said to me. She said, when my daughter learned how to jump rope and BYOP, you would have thought she had just won the gold medal. Yeah, excellent. That's excellent. Excellent. And, and I'm blessed that there's hope for volleyball because there's a lot of good coaches. Not glorified babysitters. There's plenty of them here in the South Bay. All right. That's a reality too. But plenty of good coaches that are like, I want to coach juniors. I'm highlight of course, highlighting Holly, highlighting um uh, um Aaron Wexler. Deron Forbes had a great, great thing going on with Endless Summer. Uh me, right. some of the Brazilian along with me and some of the Brazilian coaches. Yeah. There's a guy yeah. named Oz Borges who was a Cuban guy, you know, kind of kind of a strict, a more strict coach. Uh, yeah. um, but those are some of the people uh Jaron Barreto, those are some of the guys I want to I wanted to highlight before. Uh, just on the beach. You yeah, know? you know what? We cannot forget mm -hmm. the state that this is the first time since nineteen eighty one that there were two women in the final four coaching. We must not forget that. That's that is amen. very important. Amen. 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 Look, at Division Three, at the D3 level, you found plenty of them.
you oh, know yeah. like yeah like baruch college uh you know the one the, the one that made the news because of santos right right um, but women D1, the better that's critical no but for men this woman she was a men's coach yeah uh from a program that her husband built so her husband just got a bunch of super athletes made them players and then the recruits came in because everyone wanted to be a part of that and yeah. besides springfield uh, uh, they are one of five colleges that division three colleges that produce the most professionals wow. <laughs> d3 and i'll tell you why because d3 does only 4.5 scholarships so kids kids are just going to go where they want Right? right? Fine. If you grew right. up in the South Bay and you want to ride on the coattails and have your parents pay pay at USC and you graduate there and you live there, you're a made man. Good for you. But but the real work was being done by these women coaches. Right. Uh, um, and that is um, Lauren Katia from Hunter College at the time and Allison Stack, who's Justin's wife, who was a more shrewd recruiter and right. um, and had the powerful presence where men had to respect that or or GTFO. You have that. You're the you might be the last of your kind. You walk into a room. Remember, I said before the podcast, you walk into a room and men stand up, and you're like, "Oh no, no, it's okay." Yeah, that's that's a black and white film actress. That's Sophia Loren. That's that's Ingrid Bergman. That's anyone whose last name is Hepburn. So, we got a little just enough time to do the lightning rounds. I promise to have fun. Oh. This has all been fun, but I promise to have fun. Fun. All right. These are random questions, so hold on to your seat. Okay. I am setting the clock. Let's see if it pops up. There it is. All right. So let's start the 60 seconds. You might be done before this. <laughs> Maybe not. All right. Here we go. Last good book you read. Oh, I don't read books. Excellent. I watch movies. Hey, last good movie you watched. Project 1619. Perfect. A uh, favorite comedian? Oh, Whoopi. Oh, Whoopi's awesome. Marvel or DC? Could be neither. Uh, probably Marvel. Pool or beach? Oh, pool. Nice. Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter? Ah, uh, Lord of the Rings. Favorite sport outside of volleyball? I should say pickleball, but tennis. Favorite action film star when you were growing up? Oh, action. When you were growing up. First one that came to your mind. Oh, John Wayne. John Wayne. Nice. Uh, last question. Hall of Fame question. Were you Are you an inductee or are you, are you in a Hall of Fame right now? University of Northern Colorado, USA Volleyball and AVCA. You're like, the question is, <laughs> I got a question for you. Which Hall of Fame? <laughs> Hey, it has been tremendous. It has been in my honor, my duty and privilege. I said that in, in the podcast that bears repeating. And before we go, I want you to let people know more about, uh, uh, sorry, I got to get this acronym right, BYOP and some of the things you're doing for kids because it's weird. As long as we talked, we, we, I, we, we, I felt like we cheated ourselves. We didn't talk about that enough. We're over two hours and, and, and we still oh. could, and we still had, right? We still had more to talk about. So, and, um, I well, I would just say that probably one of the things I'm doing, let me just, I just put this mm -hmm. up. Um, I'm for the first time I'm hosting a go kids youth sports certification course. And that's part of my, I have a virtual gym called RNN sports gym 24 seven. You can go on as Google classroom and it's geared toward physical education teachers, but I'm actually doing a certification at the art of coaching clinic in San Antonio this year, which is very, very different. 
Right. And um, I wanted to get that full screen. Go ahead. Yeah, that's great. And one thing about Go Kids is, is, is like Jason, what you talked about, a lot of times kids and parents don't want to be in the same facility or maybe the club coach doesn't want the parent in there. So I developed a certification program and for those 10 and under kids so that I can teach teachers more about how to train kids at 10 and under. So that's what Go Kids is. So it's just the parents aren't on the court with them, but I'm doing that. And then the RNN sports gym, I have, uh, if you register for this particular course, you get VIP status on my RNN sports gym, which means you get to spend a couple hours with me on zoom. You get to see all kinds of videos and everything on my website. Yeah. And you can follow me on RNN sports gym. Ruth, let's do this again. Let's do this again. Okay. At some point, let's do maybe sometime before pre or, pre or after nationals. Uh, I have a friend, Wendy Jones, who's all into this wellness stuff. She's a fellow podcaster and business partner. She she has this podcast that is goes beyond volleyball and she's a beast. But I'm like, I told her about you and I'm like, she's like, oh, I want to know more. She's one of these power moms. Her um, her sons are starting outside opposite at Stanford and her daughter was playing for Hector at a TCU for the, the okay. beach team. So she's, you know, her, she's got a 14 year old that's like six, seven. So she's just, she's oh just, my. she's, she's, yeah, she's, um. let me tell you something. The stork, that stork that delivers the babies are like, man, you gotta, you gotta stop doing this. <laughs> Need, keeping it need, clean for the kids <laughs> that's right you need quad quattros you know so you can have two doubles teams no doubt all right so so everybody watching ruth nelson might love you but for me uh, uh, you know what no today i love you guys too this woman brought a lot of love and i am infected i don't even know if there's a known cure for what this woman gave me okay but i love all of you guys now so for all of you at home for all of you on your ipads for all of you on your desktop who runs the world old school baby old school for ruth nelson i am jason debeus this is episode 163 of the option podcast i'm gonna hit my music stay with me and we're out Come check out the Option Podcast on OptionDB.com. It's also available on iTunes and Spotify and on YouTube under the NY Varsity Sports Handle. You're going to love what you hear.